everybody, and welcome to the 342nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that stickers your purchase history with red-hot wins. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Derek the Dark Mage, at Oko Assassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey everyone, Derek here once again, looking forward to another great discussion this week. Wanted to remind you that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on our busy, busy agenda this week? Well, James, we have our normal four segments. First, we're going to kick things off with our weekend MTGO uh, weekend review, followed by talking about the top movers of the week and discuss why we think these cards saw significant gains. Then we're going to talk about our cards to watch, where you and I share our the key cards that we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, we're going to wrap up with our topics of the week, which include the Warhammer 40k spoilers, just wrapping that up from our discussion last week. Uh, also talking about Unfinity. And finally, talking with our guest of the night, Daniel Fournier, who is an MTG grinder and a local LGS employee in Toronto, Canada. So with that out of the way, let's walk through the weekend uh, MTGO review. What do we got, James? All right, over on the... There was two showcase challenges this weekend, one for Modern and one for Pioneer. We'll kick things off with the Modern Challenge from September 17th. This one was taken down by Creativity Combo, a deck that came out of left field a few months ago and has been uh, advancing into Tier 1 or Tier 1.5 status ever since. Here we see it in first and fourth place. We see Hammer Time in second, four color Omnath Yorion in third and seventh place, uh, Grixis Shadow in sixth, Amulet Titan in eighth, and out of, out of left field for the week has to go to Eldrazi Tron, a deck we certainly have not seen much in the last year or two. When we've seen Tron, it has typically been Green Tron. But here, apparently this deck went back-to-back top 8 this weekend in two different challenges um, with three Matter Reshaper, four Thought Not Seer, and four Reality Smasher. It's, it's like it's 2016 all over again. 2016 plus two Urza Sagas. It's interesting not to having the full four playsets. I think that's one of the few times you see it. But uh, who doesn't love Tron doing Tron things, honestly? Moving on over to the Pioneer Showcase Challenge from September 18th. That was on the Sunday. We've got Blue-White Control taking this down with the usual suspects. Three Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, and three Wandering Emperor being the uh, most speckable cards out of that deck, I think, since there's a lot of carryover between EDH, Pioneer use of Blue-White Control, as well as the Blue-White Control decks in Modern. Now, we have Creativity Combo showing up here in second place, but of course it has a different suite of cards available to it, so it's a different animal a little bit. This is uh, 4 Fable of the Mirror Breaker, and then 28 Instants, including Big Score, Dig Through Time, Fiery Impulse, Fire Prophecy, Fires of Victory, 
new card out of Dominaria United that I didn't accept, expect to see in Pioneer or Modern Top 8s anytime soon. Two is it charm for Jawari Disruption to Spell Pierce for an Unexpected Windfall and to Valakut Awakening. So it looks like the plan here is you kill early threats or counter early threats, and then you end up with treasures on the table. And you turn the treasures into World Spine Worm and Xenagos God of Revels to one shot your opponent the turn that you pull off the creativity. Yeah, looks like it. Have not played against this before, but those are the only two threats in the whole deck. Um, so they know what they're doing. They have the game plan, and really everything's built around this. I expect if you were able to extract indomitable creativity out of the the main, there wouldn't really be any coming back. Um, looking at the sideboard, they do have some alternative game plans with Hallbreaker Horror coming in. Also, Niv Mizzet uh, coming in one of in the, as in the sideboard, so they do have some after uh, some ways to change up the deck. But yeah, they know what they're doing, and you know who doesn't like it hit in the face with a fifteen fifteen trample. <laughs> well, it's it's even bigger, right? Because the worm, if Worm and Xenagos land, then it hits for thirty thirty. X is creatures parry up thirty thirty and trample. So, yeah. good luck blocking that. And if you manage to kill it in response, they get three five five green worm creature tokens. <laughs> so then you got to right. deal with that. And if they manage to have a flipped Fable of the Mirror Breaker at the time, they can Ooh. copy the World Spine Worm. That's gross. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty cool. And then third, fourth, and fifth were all variants of mono green. Uh, the third place list with a, was a straight mono green. Uh, as was more more popular six months ago. And then fourth and fifth were the mono green with the Teferi combo in it. Black Red Sacrifice was in 6th, the Mono White Humans deck was in 7th, and Bant Spirits, Blue White Spirits with 4 Collected Company, finishing in 8th. Yeah, mostly what we've seen in the past with the ex- a few exceptions that we we talked about. You know, really I think the meta game's pretty stable in both Modern and Pioneer, and although Dominaria United shook things up a little bit more the last couple weeks, uh, I will say on both the challenges, didn't see a lot of lay, uh, ley lines binding this week uh, compared to the last just a couple copies in the in the modern top eight and so it does seem to be falling off slightly for now i'd be curious to see if that holds going forward because the prices sure are sky high on that card right now i'm a seller for the record on leyline binding I, th- I think it's going to retreat um th- there's actually four four or five cards over ten dollars in dominaria united that i've flagged as it, for sure put them up for sale um, the only thing I'm super excited to hold, I opened a foil borderless Liliana that I'm wavering on as to whether that's going to dip. I suspect it probably will. So I think I'll put it up for sale. And then the only card I'm really interested to hold into the longer term was I opened a foil showcase Shieldred. And that is a very, very pretty card in person. And it's going to see play in Commander, Standard, and Pioneer for quite some time. Yeah, I'm a seller, uh, especially on the Leyline's Binding right now, but on on most things out of a new set, they get cracked so much these days, especially with the mass crack jobs done by vendors. So, you know, exit, exit what you can't, what, you, what you're not using right now, and I think you'll be happy for it six months down the line once the full supply hits the market. Moving on to segment two, top paper movers of the week. Big, huge list of stuff to go over here. We had to edit and trim this down to uh, just the the bare minimum, and it's still 20 cards or so long. Kicking things off with Black Market Connections, this is the Commander 
uh, Battle for Bal- Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate uh, Commander deck version going 32 to 38. Uh, I think it got as low as, I want to say, 22 or so in North America before starting its, its relatively quick climb. And some of this is targeting for sure. It's people noticing that this is one of the most played cards out of that product set and uh, looking at the inventory levels and realizing that the party time decks can almost be profitably be broken down already and probably that will be even more true in six months. And so we see BMC going 32 to 38, uh, 20% gains. We got Maddening Hex Extended Arts out of the AFC so that's uh, Adventures of the Forgotten Realms Commander uh, decks, but the EAs come out of the, the collector boosters for AFR, going 25 to 31. And this is on this is a card that does damage to an opponent when they cast a non-creature spell equal to its casting cost, I believe. And then it's it you randomly select a new opponent to curse with it. And it was like largely off my radar prior to showing up on this list, and I had to look it up on EDH Rack to see just, just how much play it was seeing. It's in 7,200 decks so far. Uh, I guess it's not equal to the casting cost of the non-creature spell. It's roll a d6. So on average, they take, you know, a little less than three damage or whatever per turn. Yeah, this is being played... So it just came to Magic Online, which is the only reason I knew of it. Uh, because previously, I mean, just even... Uh, what may this card was five dollars when it released it was you know really bulk um so this was this is shocking to me i'm surprised to see it be so high honestly um for a card that didn't really hear much about uh and on legacy it's being used in sideboards in particular to go after control decks and really close the game uh, for anyone that can't answer it because of course one-on-one you know it signs another opponent random that it's always your same opponent, so it can be pretty effective, but $15, I, I'm a seller here. Branching Evolution out of the Jumpstart product, 10 to 14. This is a card that uh, interacts with plus one, plus one counters, and of course one of the new 40k Warhammer Commander decks that was revealed last week uh, after our last cast um, is heavily leaning on that theme, so a lot of related cards have started to take off. Next, we've got Conspicuous Snoop out of M21, going from 4 to 550, 37.5% gains. That's on the back of Modern Goblins, being reinvigorated by the presence of the Runvelt Horde Master. Captain Sisse out of the original Invasion version, just non-foil, not even foil, 40 to $55. That's 38% gains on the back of Joda play. Essica, God of the Tree out of Kaldheim, same kind of pressure from Joda, going 10 to $14, 40% gains. And then Avacyn's Monument, that makes all of your legendary permanents indestructible, goes from, uh, which was in the Midnight Hunt Commander deck, I believe, with new art, if I'm not mistaken, going 4 to $6 for 50% gains on the back of Joda. Yeah, Joda is clearly winning the EDH war right now for for top new deck. I mean, it's been moving cardboard each and every week for the past several weeks. Uh, I'm curious how. I mean, when in the past, I haven't looked as closely until I joined the podcast. But how does how long does it take for the new commander deck? So when 40k comes to market, to really slow down the type of gains that you're seeing on Joda right now. That's a good question. I mean, I think that largely depends on as each new hype cycle begins 
does a new commander emerge that is uh, as widely built? I mean, there's a lot. There's always tons of new commanders, but the question is, will one of them break into the top 10? So, for instance, with Dominaria United, top 10 has been taken over in the early weeks by Joe to the Unifier, 755 decks in the last week on EDH Rec, then Ivy, Gleeful Spell Thief at 492, and Shieldred at 322, and the rest of that top 10, Lathril, Atraxa, Ur-Dragon, Miram, Yuriko, Ishin and Wilhelt are all top 10 commanders from the rest of the year. So do I think that 40k will take some shine off uh, Ivy and, and Joda and Shouldered? Yeah, probably. Um, I, I suspect that of those three, Joda is the most durable. I think I, I see Shouldered as more of a 99 card, and I think Ivy is likely to fall, fall off the top 10 relatively quickly. But Joda just lets you put together a is very much like a Traxa. It can be built and rebuilt many times. You have so many different themes you can go at. Like I was starting to pull my Jota together today and was and was considering that I might do a Death and Taxes style build or I might do a Ur-Dragon style build where you have just you have Jota instead of Ur-Dragon as your commander but you're still running a bunch of legendary dragons. So there there are so many ways to build that deck and I suspect that that's going to give it some staying power. Yeah, I mean, and it's fun. I think cascading into surefire hits with it being legendary spells makes it uh, entertaining, to say the least. I, I haven't been able to build a deck for a few months, but I, you know, if I was going to build one, it would be the top of my list. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming 40k will hit with a lot of people in terms of connecting with the culture, but I'm sure it will also not for many others. And so. Um, for those that it doesn't connect with, that focus will really stay squarely on Dominaria United for now, I would guess, as well. So, moving right along, we've got Teamer Ascendancy. This is the Old Border Foils from Time Spile Remastered that were one in every 28 packs or something like that. Um, not this card in particular, but any Old Border Foil. And these went from $20 to $30. This has got to be on the back of the Teamer 40k deck, um, being able to make good use of this card. Scion of Draco out of MH2, foils going $3 to $5. This is going to be modern play. It's been showing up in a relatively fresh list that we talked about last week um, and doing some work. And as a result, you're starting to see some movement just about a year and a quarter out from its original printing. Captain Sisse, another version. This is the FTV version. I've got FTB in the sheet here, but it's indeed FTV foils. Uh, with, with hyper-glossy foiling. Going 25 to 42, that's going to be Joda making that move as well. And likewise, Yoshimaru, ever-faithful companion out of the Neon Dynasty Commander uh, product, except the extended art, of course, comes from the Collector Boosters, going from 6 to $10. So if, you've been, if you cracked a bunch of Neon Dynasty CBs, you probably got some Yoshimarus sitting around. I would go ahead and sell those if you can get 10 to 12 bucks for them. That seems like a very solid out on a card that was probably put aside as near bulk when you first opened it. Yeah. And this is the second time it's been on the list too. So this is something that's slowly been gaining. Uh, so well, I'll be curious to see if it continues. $10 is a solid price though. I mean, that, that's enough time to enough of a price that makes it worth actually putting a card in an envelope, in my opinion, especially since I don't even think this is a fantastic card in most, most Joda bills. Like, I'm not looking to snowball a 1-1 into a 4-4 in my Jota build. 
and and I I don't know why anybody's dedicating a slot to it to be honest. Yeah, and the other legendary one one or two one hound and I mean it was it got not bulky and not cheap, but it never got crazy expensive either. So I think history shows you know there's a plateau here that people are only willing to spend so much on it. I also think Jota's just a it's a snowballing like high cmc top end commander where you use selective point removal disruption rattlesnakes and board wipes early in the game to keep your opponents at bay and then you just stop start cascading into haymakers in the late game and take control um and try to try to burn them out of their uh their remaining counter magic or sweepers with uh with your own counters and so forth so anyway, uh, I think Yoshimaru is definitely a, a sell in, once it gets double digits. Now, we have Shieldred the Apocalypse Showcase Foils uh, aforementioned going 45 to 80 in the first week of a release. This is an S-tier multi-format staple. Um, there is the Phyrexian foil version, which is competing with the Showcase. Personally, ha- having both in hand from having open boxes, I think the Showcase is more interesting and and may be more popular with collectors, but it doesn't align with the Phyrexian versions that are available of the other Praetors. So cases could be made for either version. Is this likely to, say, peak over 100 in the near future and then come back down over some period of three to six months or something? Probably. I mean, that's what we've seen happen with lots of things from the Neon Dynasty uh, alt art Japanese planeswalkers to... Uh, Urabrask and the other Praetors um, from recent sets over the last year. Hidetsugu, uh, neon versions spiking really high and then drifting down. So I think you probably have an opportunity here to sell shields right into hype at a peak and maybe buy it back a little cheaper later, maybe during the lull that typically comes in pricing between December and early January. But I don't think it's the worst call if you open one of these to just throw it in your deck and forget about it because one day these are going to be $200 plus cards. So all the versions look nice. I'm just looking at the stock currently and they're all pretty low as of right now. Um, and you know, I think a lot of this will fill in over the next few weeks, but it looks like the Phyrexian version has the lowest number of verified near mint foil sellers on TCG with 17, followed by... Uh, looks like they're pretty close, but the, the uh, showcase foils have 27 vendors and the showcase uh, textured foil has 31 vendors. So all of them pretty low stock, relatively speaking, for a you know brand new card recently released. So I'm not surprised to see the pricing going up. I, I do feel like this feels more like an old Gnawbone type of card than it does like some of the other like Vorin Clex and others where... People wanted it to be good, and it was solid, but not amazing. Uh, whereas Onabon, I, I feel like it just went up over and over again. It never really, it kind of bottomed out right after release because people knew it was good, kind of got in early and never really sold out. So I feel like I'm okay with getting in early here. I, I'd probably, again, like you said, wait three, six, three, four months, let the the rest come into stock and then dive in, but I don't think it probably hurts to hold these. You know, I think they're only going to go up. The thing about Vorinclex is that he's really good in very specific decks, um, whereas the Shieldred, the Apocalypse, is just good, period. Like, you can... I'm putting my copy into my Aloro build, where it's just going to do a ton of work, but even if you just put it into random black deck, 
you're you're still gonna get it's still gonna do a bunch of work for you yeah and the fact that it's four mana uh being four mana makes it more irreplaceable there's a lot of six mana options for example with boring clicks whereas four obviously there's there's a lot out there but this is pretty superior to a lot of other things that you can be doing um so between the lower lower mana cost and the the superiority of the actual card itself i think it's a little different class honestly there's also just a broad synergy where like all the black card draw spells often cost life and she gains you back that life when you draw cards. So if you cast a sign in blood, it's just draw two for two with a shouldered in play. And that, that goes for Phyrexian Arena. It goes for uh, not Necropotence because that puts cards in hand, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but like black market connections and, and, and whatever, anything that draws you cards and is costing you life in black is made better by having children in play. So very broad use cases. And, and uh, the number one theme, according to EDH rec is life gain of all the different themes. So it is a top theme that this obviously plays right into. The other thing I should mention is we, we've got this flagged as going 45 to 80, but there are already $56 copies undercutting that. You know, like as that peaked over the weekend, it's already falling back down from the from the point where our research was established. So, you know, is it how cheap will these get in the near future and, and will they be a buy? I suspect they are. Like, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you when this will be a $100 card, but I'm pretty confident they will be that the Phyrexians and the Showcase Foils will end up over $100 down the road. So it's just a waiting game of patience as to when you want to snap off your copies. Yep, sounds right. Joyro Weatherlight Captain out of Dominaria, just regular copies going 250 to 5. Joyro draws you cards when you play Historic Spells, which includes Legendaries. So that's a, a Jota card as well. Likewise, Kethis the Hidden Hand out of M20 lets you bring Legendaries back from the Grick graveyard and that is a card that went four to eight dollars this week 100 percent gains we've also got prosper tomebound this is the foils out of the commander decks themselves uh, from a year ago associated with adventures in the forgotten realms going seven to 14 this is a top 12 i, I put top 10 commander here but this week it's top 12 on the year it's top 10 slowly draining out and i was flagging for community members in our discord this week that they should take a look at the extended arts and then the gaming company dropped a huge wall of them into the disc into uh, tcg player and set people back but to me this is just a matter of time prosper is a popular enough card both in the 99 and as a commander and has a unique enough ability suite that the low likelihood of reprint on this card makes it uh, a very solid spec on the mid to long term as long as it dodges things like the list so this is i'm looking to see how many car how many decks yeah it is it's in seventy six thousand or 7600 decks so not insignificant um i was i was curious when you mentioned it was in both how many so this actually makes me uh look back at my pick from was it last week or two weeks ago of lathrol at two dollars and it just makes me think that this is gonna that's gonna follow the same path as prosper here getting upwards you know still pretty cheap i mean a foil for seven to 14 either of those for a top 10 commanders you know not outrageous people are clearly willing to pay that um and you know i think i'd still be selling at this point at least if you have you know multiple copies one of those things where you know you never know if it's going to catch reprint but yeah it's uh 
it's popular commander top 10 for the last two years basically right so it unless it gets a reprint it'll just keep could keep continuing to grow it's not quite a traxa um but commanders in the top 10 tend to be the the commanders that can actually make you money especially with their rarest versions so certainly a card to keep your eye on the reaver cleaver is another early standout from the Dominaria United Commander decks going 7 to 15 in early trading. It's a really good piece of equipment. I just dropped the copy I cracked into Corvold, where you can equip Corvold, and if you hit, you make so many treasures that Corvold's going to be gigantic if they don't kill it very quickly. And it's basically mimicking old Gnawbone's rule in the decks that want it. So if you're in both green and red, you're probably running both, and it's going to do a whole bunch of work getting treasure tokens in play, which is... As far as I'm concerned, one of the more broken themes in Commander, where you have to, you don't even have to work very hard anymore to leverage treasures in a ridiculous way, and some of the new 40k cards make that even worse. Like we've got Marnius Kalgar, that's probably going to be a very popular Commander, and he turns a Smothering Tithe into a Ristic Study plus Smothering Tithe. So, yeah. Not a lot of supply on all these these newer cards. This one only has, uh, for the regular editions, 24 vendors currently. So be real curious to see how these backfill in the next couple weeks. I think that's early targeting. Like I yeah. think that's speculators, vendors, and players all attacking the, the most popular cards that have just been released all at the same time. You would normally expect it to backfill. So if this spikes like into the 15 to 20 range just for the regular copies, I think you probably can sell the safely if you happen to have been able to snap some off at 7. Um, but what's going to happen is all the people that bought them at 7 to 10 are going to try to list them at 15 plus, And then that's when the backfill mm-hmm. starts. Because they yep. all start using the automated software on TCG Player to undercut each other by pennies. And a few weeks later, it's back to where it started. Yep, agreed. Remos Dragon Engine, the original copies, foils out of Commander 2017, going 20 to 45. I would imagine this is a combination of five-color EDH decks in general running this card, people building this as a commander, it finding a role in Ur-Dragon decks, and potentially being put into people's Jota decks as well. Yeah, the etched foil version also uh, from Commander Legends also went up pretty significantly seeing similar trends there so it's across the board let me just take a look at how much what we're looking at on the foil etched those are 25 roughly for near mint market price 26 lowest direct copy 45 telling and there's only 12 listings left but see an x pro trader there with 21 listings on tcg player yeah there's a wall of nine at 25 for non non non-direct so i think that's the price point right now if you if you cracked commander legends keep in mind that the only cards that come out of that those collector boosters that are actually in guaranteed good shape are the etched foils because they don't bend so ramos is probably relatively easy to sell near mint if you've got copies cracked yeah if they just made every etched foil the same as the commander legends one i think people would love them i'll say having had hands-on cracking a collector booster case for dominaria united yesterday I'm a little mystified at what they did with etched foils here versus showcase showcase foils because they basically look the same in all but the strongest light. And the text is actually a lot easier to read on the showcase foils than it is on the etched foils. So when I went to select copies to put into decks, I went for showcase foils automatically. So mm. really undercuts the etched foil, uh, the value of the etched foils in the product as a unique offering 
when there are two versions, same art, very similar treatments, and the one that's meant to be more special isn't actually practically more special. I suspect one of the things that's not happening at Wizards is they are not, the product designers, the physical product designers that choose these treatments are not sleeving cards to see how it turns out. Because how a treatment looks in a sleeve is so much more important than how it looks like in hand. Because almost everybody's playing in sleeves these days. So, um, especially people that are buying premium versions of cards. Yeah. I mean, it's just the inconsistency, I think, is the, the biggest thing. You, every time you hear etched, you don't, you don't know what you're going to get. There's like, there's like at least six versions of etched foils now. Right. And right now, it's hard to keep track of. Can you imagine in five years when all this is a blur and you're looking back and trying to think through, was that this etched version or was that a, oh, it's going to be a disaster. Yeah. All right, moving along. Wedding announcement out of uh, Crimson Vow foils four to ten dollars. This is interesting to me because this is only in four and a half thousand EDH Rex decks. This is not an EDH driven spike. In fact, as far as I'm aware, wedding announcements mostly played in standard. So this is a standard foil rare a year out from release, going four to ten dollars. It's also played in Pioneer um, in the mono wipe decks, I believe. So there is some cross. I thought the same, but I did go check the Pioneer White Humans list that we referred to on cast this week. Yeah. And they're not running it. I'm looking it up right now. So there's, I mean, it just depends. It's not super prevalent. So I just looked up. There was about 14 decks in the last 14 days, either in leagues or in challenges that did run it. And the one that was in the challenge had two in the main, two in the side. So it's just a matter in a Pioneer play, but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily like a key staple per se. All right. Then we've got Mystic Forge out of M20. This is the Artifacts Matters uh, artifact that lets you play off the top of your deck with other artifacts. And it was flagged as a spec in here way back when. And it looks like that's now been successful because the lowest, the market price on foils is at 14, but the lowest priced copy is at 37. So seems to me like that's been heavily targeted. The other interesting thing here is that Mystic Forge is getting a reprint in the 40k decks, right? Yeah, and it's going to be the Surge foil, so I think maybe these people ever bought these were thinking they they don't like Surge or they think Surge won't be real competition. So, uh, and obviously Surge the Surge foils are only in the collector's edition, which are by all accounts pretty rare uh, not a lot of vendors got not a lot of copies except amazon uh, which Very close actually to sold out yeah yeah which is pretty close to sold out it seems at least at the the time of making the cast so maybe they're betting the fact that those will be non-existent and very expensive and this will be the next best thing the other thing that i see going on here is that the brothers war is an artifact theme and we are three weeks out from previews for the brothers war <laughs> Because it, co- it comes out in November, and we're already in the last week of September by the time people hear this. So it could be a, a combination of the two. Um, I'm, I, I suspect that the Surge Foils will put a dampener uh, on this, because Surge Foiling, I think, is going to be polarizing. There may be some people that prefer this foil. I've certainly got plenty of these sitting around, and including Russian foils that I snapped off under 15. So I, I welcome a spike in Mystic Forge and will attempt to exit while the getting is good. Yeah, and I think there's there's certain cards that uh, we might talk about in 40k that mirror Mystic Forge in some ways. Um, and if this is kind of a model that can be replicated, the non-foil copies are selling right now for uh, similar amounts, up to $18 per copy on TCG Direct. So 
you can find anything that replicates this. It's an artifact that has multiple abilities. Uh, you know, you might want to look closely at it. And we got Siege Gang Commander 10th Edition foils going 20 to $50. There has been some goblin hype, and there are some lists that include Siege Gang Commander. But I've also noticed a bunch of 10th Edition foils being under pressure lately, and I think that that's just the this this weird ongoing process where there is some sub-segment of the vendor or speculator market that has just looked at old foils and has been targeting low-supply foils, and they're working their way forward from older sets. And that's been an ongoing process for years, and they're just sniping and moving these prices up on the basis of low supply. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> you know, I mean, Siege Gang Commander, fine, whatever. But who cares? You know, this is one of those edition things. Foil, that, who cares? Yeah. yeah, who cares? No one no one cares that much to pay for that Siege Gang Commander. Maybe, maybe they do, but I wouldn't want to bank on it personally. Another mover based on the 40K Teamer deck, Unbound Flourishing. This is the Mythic out of Modern Horizons, and it's an enchantment for two and a green. Whenever you cast a permanent spell with a mana cost that it contains X, double the value of X. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell or activate an ability, if that spell's mana cost or that ability's activation cost contains X, copy that spell or ability. You may choose new targets for the copy. That plays very nicely and was not reprinted in this new 40K deck. And as a result, you're seeing movement on the card. I've certainly got plenty of these sitting around. For this to go 5 to 15, definitely a seller in that range. I think the 40k deck will get built. I think this card will be bought to service it. But it's also a narrow enough card that you're probably not going to be want to caught, going to want to be caught holding once the next hype cycle takes hold. Yeah, we've already seen this spike in the past, and it retreated pretty hard pretty quickly. So... Yeah, ready to. I would take take the money and run here. Uh, I think the foils may be a little bit more insulated, but still, I, you know, a lot of this is due to speculators. They're buying up copies as soon as they hit. They're going to come on the market and help pressure it back down as well. Size on Perverter of Truth from Champions of Kamigawa. Regular copies, fourteen to forty eight. That's going to be Shieldred driving that because it combos very well with her. And then the biggest gainer of the week is Magosi the Water Veil out of original Zendikar. Non-foil copies going fifty cents to six or seven dollars, and foil copies going four. To, we're saying forty-five here, but I can tell you as someone who sold six foils in the last six days, um, I started selling around twenty-four dollars and have now raised my price to thirty-four dollars, and they're still selling at that price on eBay. Uh, this is all based on an infinite turns combo. Magosi the Water Veil, you have to give up a turn to get a, a free turn later, and it interacts with a counter called Eon Counters, which haven't been used anywhere else in Magic. But randomly, one of the 40k cards mentions Eon Counters and allows you to move them around, and so this is suddenly a potential infinite turn combo. The problem with these kind of two-card combos is you have to actually be... You have to have a deck where those two cards make sense individually. And then, or you've got enough tutoring effects that you're going to go find them. And the play pattern is so degenerate that I really don't see this being super popular in Commander in the long term. It's just too narrow, too OP. Everybody's got to shuffle up and go again out of nowhere. Not the greatest. So what I want to know is what got you to buy these originally as a spec? <laughs> I was trying to remember what it was that made me 
pick these off in Europe at three bucks a piece because I have like 14 at three dollars and I think it was just this will eventually be broken like it's a land that can generate turn free turns and this looks like a high risk high reward spec and indeed that's that's where exactly where it landed this week and I was talking to you before cast about how in situations where a card freshly spikes that was in the dead specs box you're always so much better off to be caught holding than the people that are speculating looking to get their $5 copies waiting five days for them to arrive and then trying to repost and knocking the price down. So while this was spiking, I could list copies into a naked market. Cause when I went to list on eBay, there was like two copies left. It was like an Italian copy mm-hmm. and some Russian copy posted at $85 or something. So I was able to get in there and the next person that wanted one on eBay had to buy my copy. And I was able to pull that off, you know, five or six consecutive times over the three or four days I fully expect that I will get caught holding a few copies here, but I don't care because I'm so far ahead, like 10, to <laughs> yeah. 10 times up in three years or whatever, that this is just free money. And, you know, that's you're going to have failures in MTG finance. That is inevitable. So it's very nice when you get one of these 10 times returns that covers off a lot of your loose specs. Well, your buy list backed at 3.30 on Card Kingdom. They haven't caught up. <laughs> not not interested in Card Kingdom <laughs> buy listing on this card, given that I'm still getting 30 plus. Well, congrats on the uh, free money from the bad spec box. Always a uh, that's that's probably the best win. Always feels good when it when it turns around. I mean, bottom line, run for the doors on Magosi because this is if it was a commander that interacted with this and it was a good commander. That would be a, that would be a different matter because if it was a popular commander that was going to be in the top ten, then you know it probably would make it into a bunch of high power decks, CEDH decks, etc. But when it's a combo that you can throw in anywhere, but it doesn't necessarily have synergy in other directions, not not a fan. That's a for sure yeah. sell into the hype. All right. Well, with that, let's move over to the MTGO movers of the week. Uh, first off, we have Fable of the Mirror Breaker for the umpteenth time, going from 13 ticks to 50 ticks. Uh, that's really just on the back of play in every single format. Uh, so this dropped a little bit when Neon Dynasty went out of redemption on Magic Online. It's kind of hit a valley, and now it's back up. Uh, so it's at 50 ticks because it has seen four of play everywhere. Uh, those top eight, both uh, Pioneer and Modern Challenges, uh, it is seen as four of play and in Legacy, uh, in Painter Servant, in um, Mono Red Prism, everything. It is, it is everywhere, so... Glad to see that moving. Uh, and, you know, paper copies are also very expensive now, so it's mirrored in paper as well. Uh, next up, we have Shipwrecked Marsh, the, one of the many lands that have moved upwards uh, after Redemption. I think this one's specifically moving because of standard play. It went from four ticks to six ticks, so for about a 50% gain. Uh, but many of the lands that see play either in Pioneer uh, with the new kind of decks that have emerged from uh, Dominary United or in standard from the rotation have really all seen increased pressure there just just interrupt is is the marsh cycle a part of your regular routine looking forward on standard specs on magic online is this something that you had a portfolio of the five lands i did so but i usually try to buy about a hundred copies of each land and so when they go up they usually follow a cycle where they go up during redemption period 
They go, you know, maybe two to three hundred percent gains, which individually isn't a ton. Uh, so I think, for example, Shipwreck Marsh went from like one tick to two point five ticks, something like that, during the redemption period. You know, I don't know, seven eight months ago. So I'd sell a significant number to cover my basis and make a little bit of profit, and then hold about forty or fifty copies going into the the fall um, standard season and have them go up again so its counterpart haunted uh ridge went from 50.5 ticks so 50 cents roughly to about 20 ticks um so that was really one of my top specs of the year and that one i was buying like i said for 50 cents essentially penny stock and you know it can produce huge returns the triomes had similar results uh so right now we're seeing some of that with the new triumphs not called triumphs from uh streets new capenna they're running up into redemption next month uh so redemption as a reminder is the ability to cash out magic online cards for paper versions if you do a complete set of anything that is recently in print so what that does is it pulls copies out of the magic online market pressuring the price of all the others so we've been seeing those go from you know, buck fifty to two dollars up to three fifty to five dollars right now. Um, so that's a regular cycle, like everything else. Invest in real estate, really. Got it. Would you expect that to be different with the Pain Lands recently reprinted in Dominaria United, given that they've been printed so many times before? Yeah. So somebody actually bought out about a thousand of each Pain Land going into Dominaria United, knowing that they were going to get reprinted. And despite that, I think the price went from 0.02 ticks on the old copies to 0.25 ticks on the old copies. Um, So still under a buck, no matter what. So I I think they're going to have a hard time uh, getting any value out of those. And going forward, yeah, any type of reprinted land has a hard time because there's just a lot of supply in some of those older sets. Well, I mean, 0.02 to 0.25 is massive gains if they can, if they don't disrupt the market by selling out of them, right? Because it's basically it's 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 from free to a few dollars. <laughs> yeah, they're they're not going to get punished for it, but you know, online you can't. Uh, so if you could click a button and sell them all, great, you'd you'd be making a killing. But the problem is, every for every set you have to sell, you have to go click the buttons, log in, uh, you know, trade with the bot, do the transaction, then do it all over again, whatever, two hundred and fifty times. So right. it's kind of burdensome. Uh, I mean, maybe you make you know 500 bucks off of all those after the spread um yeah probably not worth it but what is worth it which is my the next one on the list here is extinction event uh these type of cards go from pretty much bulk uh and you can buy into them in large quantities and a year or two down the road some of them hit and so this one for example it was you know, basically free on Magic Online for a significant amount of time. Now it's moving from about a tick and a half to 3.3 ticks for a change of 1.8 ticks or 123% gain. I was in on these for a, a low enough where I didn't record the entry price. So under 0.1 ticks, uh, so really penny stock here. And getting returns like that, you know, I think I had probably 40 copies just sitting around. So, you know, I make 100, 150 bucks off of it, uh, which is very nice. You do that 
um, over and over again, sometimes it becomes real money. So right now, just to give you an example, 2x uh, Double Masters is all very cheap. Uh, it's at its lows currently. And those cards, even though they're relatively in abundance now, uh, they won't be a year or two from now, assuming Magic Online is still running strongly, which you know I always have to assume uh, kind of... to. Could go other ways, but it's still here. It's been here for a long time, and you know we hope it will continue. And so uh, those type of cards were, you know, they're very cheap. You, you can buy a hundred copies when you're watching a TV show or something, and then wait a year or two. And often, you know, they don't see reprints. They start certainly drain out over the year and a half, and all of a sudden they're worth real money. So got to be patient, but you can get some of those real bulk prices on Magic Online that you can't get elsewhere. Fair enough. What's the uh, final card on the list here? All right, final card on the list is Squee, Dubious Monarch from Dominator United, the Rabble Master Impersonator, sort of, uh, went from 0.66 ticks to 2.53 for a change of a buck and uh, 1.87, uh, about 300% gain. Uh, this is really back on Mono Red in Legacy. So the Stompy lists have incorporated one to two copies of Squee uh, as a complement to Rabble Master. It is legendary, so it's a limit of how many you really want to include in those type of decks. Uh, but even that modest amount of play has been enough to, to push those prices upward, which is... Um, interesting to see, you know, it's, it, and this was, you know, one that got down to, I think 0.3, uh, ticks. So 30 cents roughly. And so, you know, you can always be looking out for opportunities on magic online. They're, they're in abundance for sure. Alrighty. We will move on over to our cards to watch for the week. Got some fresh faces to discuss in here. I'm going to kick things off with Animar soul of elements, a very popular commander in its own right. On a 6-12 to 12 month timeline, I'm talking about the etched foils out of Double Masters 2022, currently available in North America around 35 You might find them a little cheaper in other areas. I'm going to call these to go a modest 35 to 50 over the next year. Could get as high as 60 because it's a top 25 commander in its own right, and then it fits perfectly in the Tyranid Swarm deck because that is a teamer deck that very much cares about big creatures, and Animar is a card that reduces the cost of creatures for each time you put a counter on it when a creature is put into play. So basically it snowballs into bigger and bigger creatures, uh, allowing you to ramp up very quickly. And it's in the right colors for this deck. It is uh, a card that sees play both in the 99 and as its own commander elsewhere in the format. And if I'm building this Tyranid deck, I will, and looking to upgrade it, I think I'll be slipping an Animar copy in for sure. So this is, I was just looking through the past picks. I think this is your first double masters pick. Is that right? For singles? As far as you can remember? I'd have to go back and check that for sure. But I mean, yes, we're, we're getting into the, the point where I think I called Japanese borderless mana vaults at $55 back on episode 333, so nine weeks ago. And since then, probably not too much because as you and I have discussed before, and you know Travis and I have always said early on in the set's release is probably not when you want to be targeting key cards. You want to give them three to six months to get low and then look look to get in on that low. Reducing the amount of time you got to wait on your returns and minimizing the cost you pay per card. Yeah, agreed. So I just asked because 
We have two double masters on here. You know, I think over the next three months, we're going to hit a, a large majority of the set because it is just so good. But yeah, I, you know, I, I think anything double masters, it's it's going to be solid for any played card. This is clearly, uh, you know, top commander, uh, you know, I, I etched versus regular foil. I don't really have a strong preference on. Um, generally, I lean towards regular, but I, I, I think I understand that double masters etched were pretty nice, so it makes sense. Yeah, they don't, they don't they don't curl. Same kind of thing as CMR etches. Yeah, the buy price thirty five to fifty. I mean, it seems like very much a if you want a personal copy type of um, price shift compared to anything speckable. Um, but that's always good on the cast as well. I'm also being relatively conservative here. I mean, we're only at thirty listings, and nobody has any major walls of this card. And the ramp up into the forty five to fifty range is only ten or fifteen copies away. So to say that this will be 50 or 60 in a year is is pretty straightforward. And I think there's a difference between, you know, 50 minus 35, subtracting fees and so forth might not get you out of bed in the morning. But if it gets up to 55 or 60, it gets to be much more reasonable. Yeah, and the ceiling, it looks like, at least right now, is 65 for the Masters 25 copies. So there's definitely some room above that, assuming those don't climb as well. Keep in mind the edge foils have unique art. Sure, and yep. and and are going to be valued as a premium version versus the versus the M twenty five foils. Yeah, makes sense to me. Okay, tell me about your first pick. All right, so another double masters card, Green Sun's Zenith. Of course, widely played in EDH. Searches up creatures for green and X. Uh, played in sixty three thousand EDH rec decks, uh, and it was really pretty high in price, thirty to forty dollars over. Uh, prior to its reprint and so um, yeah i think based on just historical trends i'm pretty good on having this rebound from ten dollars at its current price point to about 20 uh, without much help but i do think it has a bonus which is why i was looking at it specifically of uh, potentially being unbanded modern and it's not something you can bank on and i wouldn't uh, p- make a pick based on it but I do think recently Modern's had a history of unbanning certain cards with Stormforge Mystic, Jason Mind Sculptor, things like that. Uh, and if they're looking to shake things up from you know what we've had over the last year, which is pretty solidified at this point, I could see them inserting this into uh, the format, which you know maybe be healthy, maybe not, but it certainly would change things up for a large number of decks. And so I have the regular versions going from, like I said, 10 to 20. I think if I'm going after these, I'm probably reaching for foil etched. The problem with the regular copies is that the there was a whole bunch of Eternal Masters copies that were sitting around when the reprint was announced this late this spring. And they tanked from 26 or so down to this current $10 price point. And so to climb back up, both the EMA and the Double Masters copies need to hollow out. Now, uh, Alongside that, the foil etched versions of the card, which are entirely playable in in competitive decks, because again, these etched foils don't curl, they're currently available around $21 to $24, and there's only 39 listings left on TCG Player. The biggest wall I can see is four copies, and these are not easy to... uh, to post huge walls of, because you have to have massive quantities of 2022 collector boosters available to do that with and this is a product that has held its price point relatively well so i suspect that even the gaming companies of the world you know don't have 12 pallets available to them 
Yeah, and I, what I want to know is why are there so many light played etched foils on TCG? There are 15 vendors with light played. Are they actually seen play and getting put posted back? That seems interesting. I wonder if that's a manufacturing issue. Well, my understanding is that a lot of people submit all of their inventory to TCG Player as light played to avoid it getting rejected as mm. near mint. Yeah, that could definitely be it. And it's also possible that they, they just came out of the packs with a little bit of damage to them. Right, a little bit of dings. Uh, but no, I like this. The etch looks very nice. Uh, it is solid. I'd, I'd be curious to see if competitive players use it. Um, but I think based on, like I said, the pick is more based on the EDH demand, which obviously would lean towards this uh, regardless. And it is unique from the other printings because there are several from Mirrors Besiege to Eter- Eternal Masters to from the Vault 20, which is obviously the weird foiling, which doesn't really count uh, to this. So I like that, but I, I still think, I think yours is probably a higher velocity uh, whereas mine is more, you could probably go a little bit deeper uh, and be confident, relatively speaking, but I think either version would work. Yeah, I can see the regular copies being a higher ROI on a longer horizon. The uh, The other thing is that it's not a card that was printed in these 40k decks, and the uh, Tyranid Swarm deck certainly could use a, a Green Sun Zenith. Yeah, the, the number of copies selling are pretty tremendous, um, so when you you know, you see some of the quantities, it's, I mean, it's fine, but they're selling a lot as well. So, you know, the burn rate through these are, uh, I think it'll be a lot like the double masters of the past where you look at it, you think, oh man, these are everywhere. And all of a sudden they're not in a year, year and a half, which I do have this as an 18 month timeline. I think, you know, especially with these non-foils, there is a lot of supply, so they're going to have to burn through that. Uh, But obviously that could speed up if, anything changed like a modern ump ban and and tutors are tutors like this is tutors are this tutors. is an s tier edh card and thing. it's not going to go to flavor anytime soon um my next selection of the week is uh, a little bit of a curveball i have tons of these sitting around i'm sure in a box where i didn't pay much attention to them at the time it's an uncommon foil out of commander legends which unlike the etch foils we were just talking about does tend to curl but if you live in a place with higher humidity, you may not notice that and may be able to sell them relatively easily. Nadir's Nightblade is a 1-3 for 3 elf warrior. Whenever a token you control leaves the battlefield, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So in Lathril and other green-black uh, elf ball decks, I guess Herald's the other major one, when you end up with elf tokens and they die, this does some work. But the other place this doesn't work is in decks that care about treasures. So, for instance, I'm going to try testing this in Corvold this week because every time I crack a treasure, I drain for one. And mm-hmm. and that's very handy indeed, given all the different ways that you can manufacture treasures these days. You've got Magdas and Professional Facebreakers and Old Knobbone and that new equipment we were talking about and so on and so forth. And Nightblade does a lot of work. It's already in, has quietly gone to 25,000 EDH rec decks in a little less than two years. And Marnius, out of the 40k decks, will love this card. Because Marnius gives you a whole bunch of treasures. Marnius Kalgar, again, is 2 Esper for a 3-5 double strike Astarte's Warrior. Master Tactician, whenever one or more tokens enters the battlefield under your control, draw a card. 
And then Chapter Master 6, create 2-2 white Astartes warrior creature tokens with Vigilance. So when his warrior tokens die, you're draining for one. When you get treasures and crack them or clues or food or whatever. And I think we're getting Power Stone tokens uh, in Brothers War. So all of that works very well with Kalgar. And Nightblade being in that many decks already means it's not really a under-the-radar pick, given that there's only 33 listings left of these uncommon foils. There are some walls. There's like somebody who's got 16 copies at 4 bucks, So it's not quite ready to sell out or anything, but this is the kind of card where I don't see them making it a priority reprint anywhere, and that these will quietly end up a $10 uncommon foil in another couple of years. So I don't know about you. I have rules. Um, so one of the things that I try to do is try to figure out where I've done things wrong in the past and stick by my rules. And one of my rules is don't buy foils or non-foils for that matter of uncommons at any price point over like two bucks. Uh, just because I think it gets hard to hit those high price points. You really have to, you know, nail it. Um, whereas if you go under you know a dollar you miss out you know it's obviously less invested but also easier to make the win so i i agree with the logic um i just worry about being able to find an exit on this in time before i mean even if it's not a reprint priority and being it on comic gives it a lot of places to be able to re-reprint it maybe not in foil um but we'll see so yeah, I mean, I, I like the logic. I, I think it has the opportunity to succeed, but I, I worry about being able to get to 10. Um, and, you know, if you get stuck at 5, it makes it hard to, to flip out of these. I, I won't even profit. put anything up for sale under 10. <laughs> so right. I definitely don't want to get stalled out at 5. Currently, Card Kingdom buy list support is about a dollar credit on the foils. So you're not super well-backed. And the non-foils, they're offering $0.38 cents and 49 credit versus a $1.60 market. So there's no doubt that this is a Magosi, uh, the water veil kind of spec where you snap 20 copies off, you throw them in the closet, you check back in on them every six months, and eventually you probably make some money. But it's entirely possible you get stalled or 5 or $6.00 thing is i just i just don't see this being the kind of card that is going to catch a reprint anytime soon like i don't think it's a secret layer card i don't think it's a list card priority it's going to be a forgotten card and i will not be surprised at all if five years out they still haven't reprinted this yeah i would think if they reprint it it'd be on it would be non-foil in a random commander deck as kind of filler so I mean, I would, which obviously wouldn't impact the foil price. For those that are skeptical, like you are of this card, I would just keep your eye on Marnius Kalgar. If Marnius takes over the the top, takes over for Joda in the top ten, which is entirely possible, the card is obvious and busted. Um, then this card is an easy include in that deck, and you could see some motion. Mm-hmm. Yep, sounds good. And I add, and also, I mean, twenty copies sounds about right because you you want to make it worth your time with it being so cheap. Um, and deep enough to be able to get in on the hype cycle and profit from it, but not so deep that you can't sell out by the time hype cycle moves on, potentially. All right, tell me about your next selection. All right, so my next selection, which has been talked about, I think, quite a few times on here, but was never a pick, uh, is Professional Face Breaker, the, specifically the Extended Art Foils, uh, which currently are around $9, and I've been going up to 20 uh, in the next 18 months for a little over 100% gains. And, you know, I thought Basebreaker came out 
hot with a lot of conversation, a lot of talk about it. And I thought it might cool, but it continues to do well, at least on EDH Rec, uh, having it, it be in more decks than the new Triumphs in Streets of New Capenna. Um, anything more than that's in more decks than Triumphs, obviously, that is a lot of decks. Um, yeah, I think one of the challenges, though, is it came out at a high price point. It was at, I think, 11. It jumped to 15. Uh, and it slowly sit, slid down to about 9, where it has roughly stabilized. Um, and with the regular non-foil copies being at about 450, yeah, I, I don't think it can slide too much further before it faces competition with the regular copies. So, uh, like I said, I have it going from 9 to 20, because just due primarily to the... Uh, prevalence of play combined with the fact that it's down to about 50 sellers uh, which is pretty low for a card that just came out four months ago roughly four or five months ago um, and not a lot of huge walls out there at least at a reasonable price point and you know this is i mean we've talked about it already this is a treasures focused card treasures are broken uh, this sees play because of it and uh, you know those trends i think will continue uh, and command zone has already featured this card several times and you know hopefully it seemed to do well every time they featured it so hopefully they continue to do so which would drive additional sales of the card josh's big combo win on command zone with this card on the table underscored for me one of the things that people very much misevaluated about this card up front they looked at it and said okay it's got menace and whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player you create a treasure token so you have to get in with it and then if you do you get a treasure and then once you can exile the top card of your library and you can play that card this turn and they're like well that's a lot of steps like they'll kill it or they'll block it and it's like no 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 you're missing the point the menace and the when your creatures hit that's gravy just focus on the sack of treasure draw a card because that's what this card is in Treasures decks, I don't care if this ever attacks. I'll attack if I've got the opportunity. Maybe I drop it on turn two or three. On turns three, four, five, six, somebody leaves himself undefended and I can get in with the Menace and, and get the Treasure and set myself up. But the reality is that my deck is generating a bunch of Treasures faster in other ways, and this just allows me to turn those Treasures into cards. And yep. and keep in mind that in Corvold in particular, when you sack a Treasure, Corvold gets bigger and you draw a card. So if you sack a treasure with this, Corvill gets bigger, you draw a card, and you draw a virtual card with Facebreaker. So in that that Treasures Matters strategy, Facebreaker is very, very good. And so there, there's a reason that it is already in 30,000 EDH rec decks, and it's only been out for less than six months. So if you hit three opponents, three separate opponents, you get three treasures? Yes. So it's two a player, so you get one per player, right? Yeah, if you, if you split your attacks... And you manage to get yeah. through all three times, then yes, that happened in one of the games this weekend. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Pretty nice. And I mean, this is just a straight value card, which, you know, of course could always be superseded, but at, at three mana, a lot of things going on, you know, data's there. Seems like it should make it. Yep, I think it's good. And I think you're going to be right about it. And I think as opposed to something like Thieving Skydiver, where I've picked it twice on cast and it took two years for it to show any motion at all, and fell from, I don't know, 7 or $8 down to 3 or $4 before it started to move up a little bit. This is a card that nobody's really debating and that isn't off the radar. It's very much on the radar, as evidenced by the reportage of decks that use it on EDH Rec. So you're not fighting against the market here. And in, in a case where you're not trying to outguess the market, you're going to do much better much faster, as opposed to something like 
Pro Traders were playing this weekend, and we were comparing uh, black market connections to Protection Racket again, and talking about how Protection Racket extended arts are like 10 times cheaper than black market connections, but it's debatable whether they are about the same power level. And, you know, I conceded during the conversation that it doesn't matter what I think about the card or how many times we've seen um, uh, Protection Racket do well in person, because if the rest of the market doesn't see that go down, then there's going to be no movement on that card. Yeah, so for example, just looked up Thieving Skydivers up to 25,000 decks. So this is already in 5k more decks in a four-month period. Right. Which is and and more importantly, Thieving Skydiver <laughs> foil extended arts are still like 367 or something. And yeah. and will these eventually hit my mark and beat $10? Yeah, probably cuz but there's still 69 listings of those. And there's significantly less a face breaker for a card that is two years younger. Yep. Yeah. One one of the mods uh, in the Discord recently was talking about you know just the high prevalence of decks and new decks and new cards, and the fact that you know as more and more and more new cards get produced, it's harder and harder and harder to break through. And so you know I think one of the things that they had been doing and I've also just been a fan of the whole time is really focusing in on the things that either are doing well or you know you really think are going to succeed and, and be more than just above mediocre uh, because you know with with so many cards out there and so many options people really only focus in on the top cream of the crop 10 percent and everything else generally goes by the wayside and so you know don't it, you know, I think it. I think it served me well to not try to do the top, you know, ten cards from a set anymore, but instead do the top one to three that you really think are going to do well, because the top ten, seven of them are just going to fade away. Finding a hidden gem is so much less valuable than simply being slightly ahead of the curve. All right, so my next selection here is. A little risky because it is single format based, but Turok Dread Cantor is a mythic foil old border card out of Modern Horizons 2, so it's a little over a year old. It's down to 37 listings near mint on TCG Player. There's a ramp that goes from about $9 on a few copies pretty quickly up to $15 plus. And I suspect that that very uh, steep ramp is going to pay off for people that get in in that nine to eleven dollar range. I think it's going to end up being a twenty dollar plus card. Thing is, it's only in four thousand decks on EDH Rec, so it's not really a strong commander card. But it is seeing decent modern play in uh, mid range decks that include black, and it drains twenty or thirty copies a month at present, which should be enough to get it to my target. Yeah, this card's been resilient so far. Uh, so it first saw play, I don't know, the first two or three months after Modern Horizons 2. Everyone was like, oh, it's interesting, seemed good, but then kind of faded out of them. I faded out, and then it bounced right back. Um, and so I think it's going to come and go based on the meta. Uh, but, you know, it's not so dominant where it's crazy expensive right now. Uh, but it could be. I mean, if the meta becomes prominently white or it allows, you know, a little bit more time to be more grindy and this, you know, get the random him to Turok staple onto this as kicker is a really powerful effect. And you have, if you have time or you're using an Aether Vial to put it in like some of the humans lists do and all you're doing is paying the two to, to activate the, 
the kicker upon it uh, hitting the battlefield, it could really do some damage. And so I, I think the downside of this is pretty low. I mean, I think at worst, you know, if it, it sees something like ski, thieving or not thieving skydiver, uh, skyclave. Um, the the Death Shadow wannabe. I can't think of the name right now, but it, the two mana Death Shadow that um, you know came out hot and then faded a little bit. That one, you know, really left the market. Here, I think it's a little bit more generic. It's allowed to play in uh, many different decks with the human one epitomizing the fact that it's the only black card and you know basically a mono white humans deck. Um, so I, I think it'll do well. And at, at worst, I think the floor is pretty high relative to the buying price you have listed here there's a there's a lot going on with this card in terms of its meta positioning one of the things is that there's like four different kill spells point removal spells that are all white between march of otherworldly light path to exile ley line binding and uh prismatic ending and none of those can target it solitude can't target it it can block solitude and solitude can't block it it can block omnath and omnath omnath can't block it etc and blocks hammer decks which is important yep yep uh and so it is a single format spec you can probably wait a little longer it's not the kind of thing i want to be super deep on but i'm also not selling my copies that i have from cracked you know german japanese and english mh2 boxes so i think if you're holding already you can sit on these for another six to twelve months and if you're not don't have any and you're looking to pick some up potentially to play with if you lean in on the OBFs and the re- that fits with the rest of your deck as you foil out, then you're probably going to see solid gains the next year. Yeah, these type of cards are what also make me happy to be holding a large stack of collector boosters for Mountain Horizons 2. There's just so many cards like this that are incredible. They're, you know, I might not own each of them individually, but having the the sealed product gives me a, wi- a wide access to all of these, and you know. I think those are still at probably in our four hundred dollars, but I expect those collector boosters to keep bumping up as these type of cards go from ten to twenty bucks across the board. It's pretty obvious that MH two is the most impactful set, maybe of all time, in terms of its overall impact on meta. You can't really look at the first five years of the of the game when you're making that determination because that's just a whole different scenario. But in the modern era of Magic the Gathering. Yeah, I mean, MH2 is probably unparalleled. There are something like 45 cards that have top-aided major competitive tournaments out of that set in the first year of its release. In retrospect, I think the creators would say it was too impactful, honestly. I think somewhere between Modern Horizons 1 and Modern Horizons 2 would have been appropriate, where you're, you're shaking things up, you're giving new tools, but you're not tossing out yeah, most of modern saying if you're not playing these cards, you're you're just not good enough. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's an interesting debate, um, and certainly different people have different opinions. I I tend to judge whether the set is just right or too impactful on the basis of whether the format is good, not whether it invalidates cards. But that is a real thing. Like if you if you were holding a bunch of cards like Snapcaster Mages or something that you you bought Japanese foils five years ago thinking that they would be played forever in modern <laughs> and <laughs> and now they're just not. Uh, yeah, I can see how people are upset. All right, I've got one bonus pick this week. I've got four. I'm going to go with right. Indomitable Creativity. Regular copies. Oh, I've got foils on the sheet, but it's supposed to say regular. Just regular old copies because you can't even get foils now if you wanted to. This card shows up week after week right now in modern. And it's also starting to show up in Pioneer. And 
if they reprint this, which could easily happen in either Commander decks or the main set for the Brothers War, then this will collapse. They'll get very cheap. If it dodges a reprint for the next six months, and Brothers War is almost certainly the most obvious place for it to catch one, then these are going to get expensive. They're going to go from current price of $15 to $30. It's a single printing card. The foils are basically sold out. You need four of them in the deck that runs it. There's zero chance it's going to fall out of the deck because it is the deck. The whole deck is built around the card. So the the archetype can fall out of the Pioneer or Modern meta, potentially, but so far it's been very resilient. And this is in a you know the high probably one of the higher power levels that modern has ever seen and creativity you know Eldrazi Winter obviously is is a different story but creativity still faces Modern Horizons 2 cards all the time and and top 8s and it you know it won this week and and put multiple copies in in two different kinds of top 8s so i think if it dodges the reprint it's going to be pretty good and it does have a little bit of EDH play 3300 decks nothing to write home about so it is a, a two-format spec and does in part depend on whether people can still p- play paper after this next wave of COVID hits. But yeah, I think it's going to be pretty solid. I think if you pick up a few play sets at 15, you're probably going to do all right. Looking through the sales history, there's been a lot of sales even at current price levels. And you know, similar to the Goblins cards that we talked about recently in prior weeks, this has a lot of the four ofs. Um, so looking through the sales list, four ofs of near mint, LP, MP, um, you know, because this is going to be competitively run. So people are willing to buy uh, any of the type of uh, condition because, you know, they just want something that works to get into their tournament deck. So I, right now the inventory is pretty low, about 50 vendors for all the versions um, with only about 13 having four or more. Yeah. I think if it dodges a reprint, you're good um, because it's in both pioneer and modern. I think if it was, and it's one a mythic, not a rare other, and it's a mythic and not a rare, and this is getting pretty old, um, which is crazy to think about, but Aether revolt was what? 2017. Well, and the thing is this is a card that I think benefits from the current state of buy listing in our market where the GP system and the local play system has in large part collapsed and the week-to-week access by the major vendors to huge pools of uh, sequestered cardboard is very much reduced. I suspect the majority of the indomitable creativity uh, inventory is locked up in shoeboxes where people don't even realize they have this card that's worth 15 bucks. Yeah, and they think it's bulk. Because it was yeah, because it was draft chaff for them during that you know that drafting period, and so they ended up with you know one to three copies in their collection, but they haven't they haven't heard yet that this is a fifteen dollar card, and they're not going to a GP to drop them off to somebody, so it's going to be very very tough for vendors to restock this faster than the market can buy them four at a time. So what's your timeline? Six to twelve months. Twelve months. Um, That sounds right. Yeah, I think you. So it's went up in. May or so, May, June, you could get these for five bucks. So they've already doubled up twice, um, 200%. So I think it'll probably stay at this plateau until Jan, you know, roughly what, January, maybe in February. And then as people continue to build decks, they're ready to go out and hit some tournaments in the spring. They're getting their tax refunds. I think maybe it bumps up to 
thirty at that time. I would think after the price memory of the current uh, new plateau is kind of fully in effect, that would be my guess. All right, we've got a pro trader selection of the week. Missed the last couple of weeks on this, but we got back in the saddle. Tyvar Kell borderless foils <clears throat> being called by pro trader Big Hoss. An interesting thing about this call is that I originally called it on in March of 2021, so about a year and a half ago. And I called it at the price at that point at $10 to go to $28, and instead it fell to $3. However, Lathril continues to be one of the most popular commanders, and this card is more or less an auto-include in Lathril because it's a 4-mana uh, three loyalty planeswalker that gives all elves you control tap to add black. And then the plus one is put a plus one plus one counter on up to one target elf, untap it, and it gains death touch, all of which are useful. The zero is create an elf warrior creature token, one one, also always useful in elf ball. And then the minus six is you get an emblem with whenever you cast an elf spell, it gains haste until end of turn and you draw two cards, which is busted in that deck. So the question here is I my original call was way early obviously. As a foil mythic that made sense in Lathril, I did not see this going down to $3. But there were down to 37 listings, no huge walls, and a relatively steep ramp up to that $10 mark. I also don't see this being the kind of thing they're going to reprint anytime soon. So the Car Kingdom Bylas backing on this is three fifty cash. So, sold. <laughs> yeah, because you're... you're you're in a much better, much less risky position than with Nadir's Nightblade. Yeah, and so they're asking for 12 copies on Card Kingdom, so which is a, pretty normal for this type of card uh, for a foil extended art. Um, yeah, supply is really shallow. I mean, it's a borderless mythic foil. Planeswalker. I mean, it's not going to get Planeswalker, but I think Planeswalker actually is a distraction here. Um, you know, planeswalkers generally haven't done very well lately. Um, at least the the rank and file ones, with some exceptions, obviously. So I don't love that it's a planeswalker, but I love that it's a mythic. I love that it's foil and borderless. Um, and the fact that the the buy in so low and you know synergies are high. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll do well. And you know, you might have to wait a little bit, but having this go from three to ten seems like a no brainer, just off a of drain supply, if not uh, anything else. And if you can get additional demand in there all the better so if i misled you 18 months ago apologies but this is probably your time to dollar cost average and i suspect that your your ten dollar copies are going to get there too it's just a question of how long the the longer this dodges a reprint and the longer lathral stays in the top 10 the better this card's going to do because it's in nine thousand decks in edh rec which isn't nearly as much as something like uh nightblade or um, professional face breaker but the percentage inclusion in the elf decks is like 60 to 70 percent so like if you're building green black elves you are going to play tyvar kel so it's just a question of are we going to get a fresh elf commander that matters and i'm going to argue we are but this has no chance of being reprinted at the time and the set i'm referring to in 2023 is modern horizons 3 lord of the rings which is modern legal cards you know lord of the rings theme for sure, we're going to get an Elrond card. For sure, we're going to get a um, Galadriel card, etc. There will be Planeswalkers in there, probably. But we're not going to get a Tyvar Kel. Can you imagine if Command Zone 
used the ultimate on this and just went off. That would be beautiful. Yep. It would send it sky- skyrocketing. Well, I mean, I'm sure if you go back and watch Lathril games on YouTube, there's been plenty of Tyvarkel action. Yeah. Yeah, I would expect so. All right. So moving on past these cards to watch, we got lots of other stuff to get through. Uh, weekly topics. Let's start with the final 40K previews. I believe during our last session, we were up to the Demon deck and the Tyranid Swarm deck. But I don't think we had seen the Necron deck yet, which is the Mono Black Artifacts Matters deck. And it includes commanders like Trazin the Infinite, four double black, four six, legendary artifact creature Necron with Death Touch. Ability Prismatic Gallery. As long as Tazrin the Infinite is on the battlefield, it has all activated abilities of all artifact cards in your graveyard. <laughs> so... If you have a Bolus's Citadel in the yard that they shut down, but you play Trazen, you now have a Bolus Citadel in play again. This card yep. is what you refer to as open-ended synergy, because this is just going to get better and better and better as time goes on. There's just so many things you can do with it, and people are going to build it as a commander, but it's also going to go into the 99 in certain decks. Pretty cool card. There's the Out of the Tombs for two and a black. It's the enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, put two Eon counters on Out of the Tombs, then mill cards equal to the number of Eon counters on it. If you would draw a card while your library has no cards in it, instead return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, and if you can't, you lose the game. So this is an interesting card in and of itself, but it's also the card that combos with Magosi the Water Veil, plus anything that moves counters from one place to another to achieve the three-card combo that has those foils selling $30 plus. Again, way too out there and and tangential for my liking. So as much as I like Out of the Tombs as a card, uh, I'm all about the selling on the Magosi. I also like Lynch Guard. Uh, Given the popularity of Joda, this is two and a black for a 2-3 Necron artifact creature. For three and a black, you can sack it and return all legendary creature cards from your graveyard to your hand. So you get Jota rolling, you got six or seven things out, you're just about to win the game, somebody supreme verdicts and wipes the board, you play a lynch guard, sack it, bring them all back to your hand and start to go off again. Seems pretty fine. Nice. It's all these, I, I love these decks in that they're interesting, there's a lot going on, but nothing seems crazy broken, which is, I think, a good place to be. Hmm. There's a bunch of combo cards here that are either gonna, that are already activated by cards we may not have realized or will be eventually. Like, oh yeah, that there will be eventually for sure. There's just a lot of uh, very specific technical language on the Necron cards that is going to lead to broken things happening. It, for instance, Biotransference, two double black for an enchantment. Creatures you control are artifacts in addition to their other types. Oh, yeah. The same is true yeah. for creature spells you control and creature cards you own that aren't on the battlefield. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, you lose one life and create a 2-2 black Necron warrior artifact creature token. So there's probably some kind of loop you can do with like zero casting cost artifacts where you're like picking them up or they're dying and you're putting them back in play over and over again and making this huge Necron army to attack with. I, I expect Biotransference is a breakable card. Cannot tech Scarab Swarm, four for a 1-1 flyer. When it enters the battlefield, exile target player's graveyard. For each artifact or land card exiled this way, create a 1-1 colorless insect artifact creature token with flying. I suspect that this in typical play is six 1-1 flyers for four. 
Yeah, sounds about right. So in certain decks, that's going to do a bunch of work because you might have uh, an artifact creature's lord or something, and these are going to be like a steel overseer is going to tap and make, you're going to have six two twos in a single turn. And then you're going to use some of this other stuff like Cryptek so that when the swarm blocks something and dies, it comes back into play and does the same thing all over again to another player, disrupting their graveyard synergies and giving you a whole bunch more tokens. So I was, I was surprised to see Poxwalkers was one of the best-selling cards from this, um, which seemed fine for Constructed, but you know, I, I was curious of your take on whether that's going to see a lot of EDH play. This is a 3-1 a for 3 Death Touch, and whenever you cast a spell from anywhere, if this is in your graveyard, you can pull it into the battlefield tapped. And that's, we've seen that ability happen in, in a number of different ways recently. So this isn't, you know, it's not that unique, uh, but it's, it is one of the top bestsellers at Card Kingdom currently. The, the deal here is that people think this is going to be a big deal in Legacy, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I would think so. I would think so. And I, I mean, I, you play against that Legacy dredge deck and it, it's going to kill you one way or another. I don't. I don't think it really needs this. I don't. But maybe I'm wrong. We will see. But I'm. Um, I'm not super high on the card from a spec perspective, yeah. and I, I suspect that any early price spike on it is probably something you sell into if you happen to have copies. Yeah, I agree with that. I was. I was very surprised to see it on the list. I think Scepter of Eternal Glory is likely to be a pricey mana rock down the road, given that it's going to be limited to this set and is very mm-hmm. unlikely to catch a reprint anytime soon, because it's a four. It only makes one mana of any color normally, and that's very makes it a very bad mana rock. But the other ability is tap to add three mana of any one color, but you can only activate that if you control three or more lands with the same name. So it's going to do best in one and two color decks. But in those decks, it is better than Thran Dynamo, which is a very popular mana rock. So... I suspect scepters, especially warp foils, will probably be worth some money down the road. Um, because anything that sees broad play outside the themes of the decks in question and is so likely to dodge a reprint given the licensing considerations means that those things, that, that subset of cards is going to get very pricey indeed. So, do we talk about the Golden Throne yet? Uh, on the, we didn't talk about that last cast yet, right? That's uh... the other deck. So this is the four mana uh, legendary artifact, and it has, if you would lose the game, instead exile the Golden Throne, and your life total becomes one, and the more potent ability, sacrifice a creature, add three mana in any combination of colors. This is quite the card. Yes, and this is one of the ones that I expect is going to be worth a lot of money, both because it's going to be targeted by Warhammer players. Uh, for those that don't know, the, the probably the biggest figure in the Warhammer mythology is the Human Emperor, and this is his throne. So it's a pretty big deal in their world. There's a, there's a lot going on here because you can sack a creature and add three mana in any combination of colors. That is a very good mana rock as well in certain decks. Like, I'm going to put this in Corvold for sure. I can sack stuff, make mana, get benefits. And, and it has the added benefit of potentially giving me an extra turn if somebody alpha swings against me for the win. There are, however, situations where this is not going to save you. So, for instance, if they have a deterministic combo kill 
and they can stop it at any point to kill you with, say, getting you to zero life. Say they have a way to do infinite damage, for instance. They're going to take you to zero. Your life total is going to go back to one. They're going to continue with the combo and kill you. Uh, Likewise, if it's something like they mill you to zero. Okay. On your next draw step, you're going to draw, not die, go to one. But on the next time you draw a card, you will. Yeah. I view this kind of like uh, a mixture of that ability, which is tentative at best, uh, but also being able to do proactive strategies on your side. So being able to... So I, I view this as kind of like an ad nauseum type of card where you're using it to go crazy, draw your whole deck, do what you shouldn't be able to do, go to one life, and then use the resources that you drew into to go for the win. That was, I think, my general thought, initial take because, um, you know, we've seen the enchantment version of this in white that is used in ad nauseum that does that very well. This is only an impression of that, uh, but with combined with the second ability, it provides some versatility that otherwise wouldn't be available. The two biggest themes likely to use it are sacrifice matters and life drain decks that rely on blood artist type effects or cruel celebrant type effects and token decks. So I would run this in Ginny Fey and or Jet Mirror because I can get major mana advantage off my tokens. So let's see how, because Gilded Lotus is essentially this plus a mana, but you cannot, you have to do all one color. Gilded Lotus is in 71,000 decks. Yeah. Uh, and obviously it's been reprinted a ton. So uh, not that expensive, but I, I view this as a one one mana less Gilded Lotus in a way because the decks that are going to run it, uh, the sacrifice theme, like you said, is probably not a drawback. It's almost a a benefit. Yeah. So I think the deal with the deal with the Warhammer cards is I wouldn't think too hard about them until you see the EDH rec play patterns establish themselves. Yeah, like you agree. If you're super confident about some of these cards and you think they're priced too cheap, you know, by all means, go ahead and, and snap them off. But I think you're, so many decks will be cracked simultaneously that prices, like, there's going to be super deep piles of cards, for, especially for regular versions. And it's going to take months for the market to sort that out, as popular as these might be. And so... Yeah, very, very few commander cards go up right away. I mean, there's, there are some exceptions, but just like anything else, play to the numbers... And, and so I, and I think the focus ultimately from a spec perspective is going to be on the cards that have the broadest applicability. So there's like stuff like Assault, Intercessor, one white, black, three, two, first strike, menace, chain sword. Whenever a creature an opponent controls dies, that player loses two life. That's a lot of drain. Especially if you can make this thing indestructible or something or blink it, blink it uh, out until end of turn while a board wipe goes off. This is the got that Cambal kind of thing going on, where it's, or protection racket, where it's just it's going to end up dealing ten to fifteen damage to the table for three mana, and occasionally it's a rattlesnake because it's got first strike, and occasionally it gets in for bonus damage because it's got menace, so it's just going to fit in a bunch of places. Yeah, the data. I mean, also what we think is good is not what players want to play. Sometimes uh, it can be a good card, but if players aren't playing it, it doesn't matter. So. I agree. Looking at the data, uh, I do expect the... There's a Flying Angel. Here we go. Vexilus Predator. So, four mana, Flash, Vigilance. 
when it comes into play, uh, oh, I guess in general, commanders, you control a protection from everything for oh, four, oh, yeah, one, that card. White, three, three colors, one uh, white. I think that'll probably do pretty well. Um, so the effect everyone wants and it's flash. Let's you hold up your mana. Seems to be something that is popular and currently is already on the bestseller list. I think that'll probably stick around as one of the top cards from the set, but we'll see. I mean, it's it's good because it's just so broadly applicable. If you're in white and you have a commander that, that you require to have in play for your deck to do anything, it's going to be very, very good. And decks like Aloro that have, you know, that I don't care whether Aloro ever comes into play in that deck, really. I just want the Eminence ability to gain two life every turn. I would care less. But if I was running something like Xur, where my deck is ultra busted when Xur is in play, but doesn't, you know, is significantly weakened if you can keep Xur off the battlefield, then Praetor is better. Because the first point removal, they they point at Xur when he trigger go, moves to go into the attack step and is going to get his first trigger for the turn. They go ahead and fire off a point removal. They they waste a path or swords or whatever, and you drop the Praetor, and now they, they're in trouble because they've got to decide whether to wipe the board or not. I love that they did commanders you control, not your commander. So if you steal somebody else's, you get the protection for that as well. Yeah. The, the other card that looks very broadly applicable to me is Ultramarine's Honor Guard. Three and a white for a 2-2 two, two that gives other creatures you control plus one, plus one. And it has squad two. So if you cast it for six, it gives all your creatures plus two, plus two. And if you cast it for eight, it gives all your creatures plus three, plus three. So in decks like Ginny Fey and Jetmir, this can just make your 5-5 five, five hasty cats just completely ridiculous. All right, so let's move over to Unfinity, because, you know, what what would Magic be without one hype cycle being right on the back of the other? <laughs> the thing about both these sets is that they were delayed. These were both supposed to come out last spring. And so Wizards is squeezing them in this fall in between DMU and the Brothers War. And Unfinity, of course, is a unique animal because these unsets have traditionally not been where you want to point your spec money. The, the fact that so many of the cards were silver-bordered, which meant they weren't playable in most circumstances, meant that the sets were largely taboo from a finance perspective. And some of the cards, like, you know, Foil, Richard Garfield's, or whatever, did end up being worth money. And some of the best lands in Magic history, especially prior to the Booster Fund era, where they just started slathering the good lands out on the table, came from unsets. But... That being said, people were still highly skeptical heading into this release. And I think given what we've seen today, we're pretty much still in the same boat. The difference here is that there is a subset of these cards that are legal in Legacy, legal in Commander, legal in Vintage. They are not legal in Modern. They're not legal in Pioneer or Standard. They will see Kitchen Table play. But when you're cracking this set, the majority of what you're opening is for funsies. And they've definitely, you know, kicked up the unique, fun playstyle a notch. They revealed today that the stickers in question are not cards that peel off like we saw in the secret layer. They are modifier stickers where you can change the clothing of characters in the card art. You can change their power and toughness. You can add abilities to cards. You can change their names. And the variety of changes that you make happen to have interactions with other cards that care about those things that care about abilities that care about the art that care about the names and so from the perspective of expanding the unset universe i think this is actually 
smartly done. This is well-designed from the perspective of giving people that like these kinds of sets more tools to play with. However, I think our entire Discord was pretty much in agreement today as they were going through all this, that this is the complexity level on this set is like an all-time high for Magic. There's so much to keep track of in these games. It's probably going to be very hassle-filled, argument-prone, judge calls being required in local play. Not super awesome. And right. one of the, the kind of open-ended question marks at this point is how many of the attractions are going to be relevant for EDH and Legacy. Because the way the attractions work is it's a whole separate deck of cards off to the side of your main deck. And you have to have, I think, in competitive play, at least 10, with no two of them the same. So in Legacy, you're taking 10 attractions, you shuffle that up, you put it to the side, and you will have cards that you play in your Legacy deck that will put these attractions into play, and they are artifacts. And then certain things will happen that will give you tickets. And the tickets are more or less like energy was in uh, Kaladesh era, where it's like a whole different resource that you track just for the purpose of the attractions. And it lets you trigger the ability on the attraction. But when you trigger it, you then have to roll a die to see if you actually get the benefit or not. This mind boggling. (laughs) It's crazy to add into legacy because It seems to me what's probably going to happen here is that most of these cards are just going to be too unreliable for Legacy. But a couple of them will probably be end up being busted enough to see play. And then you're going to have all sorts of Legacy heads complaining that they're getting that, you know, what that's doing to the meta and whatever. Yeah. Well, so Maro did a few podcast, at least one episode of his podcast on this and made it quite clear they did this in with Legacy in mind and said that they don't plan on having any of these cards that are kind of a little wonky or a little offbeat be competitive playable. I believe they tried to do that, uh, but I've also seen Wizards print a two-card combo that was obvious within one minute of a card being posted on Twitter. So don't know how much I trust that. Um, and generally speaking, I mean, I don't know, just why... Right, like all these things, I, I get. I mean, this is basically a pet project. That's the reason these still exist, and somebody likes them. I'm sure. I've never drafted them. I never want to. And you, you've dug into it a lot more than I will, because I mean, this is the type of thing I will just completely ignore, minus the shocklands, which obviously are a key focus of the value of the set. But man, this thing is. It's it's just a, it's a disaster, honestly. So let's keep our focus on some of the cards that might actually matter in some combination of Legacy and Commander. One of the ones that jumped out at me is this Planeswalker they revealed, Comet Stellar Pup. And this one is clearly aimed at the pet people, um, looking to get them to get excited about adding cute pets to their collection. This is two red-white for a five-loyalty Planeswalker, legendary Planeswalker Comet. It's a dog floating in space. It only has one loyalty ability, which is roll a six-sided die. If you roll a one or a two, so 33% chance of this happening, you give him two loyalty, then create two 1-1 green squirrel creature tokens. They gain haste until end of turn. If you roll a three, you... Is it minus... Let me just see... Zoom in on this. 
three. Return a creature card, uh, card manual value two or less from your graveyard to your hand. Is that minus two loyalty on that one or minus one? They're all zeros. No, so no, 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 they're not because they have a, a consequent loyalty shift. If you look at the one or two, the first thing in the uh, let's see, yeah. complicated, yeah. yeah, 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 that's negative, negative, negative one. Uh, it just says negative. I think it's negative one. So on a three, you get to return a oh yeah a card with manual value two or less from your graveyard to your hand. So that could be a land, could be a delver, could be a Sylvan library. Who knows? Uh, four or five. Comet deals damage equal to the number of loyalty counters on him to a creature or player, then plus two, I think. So you have a 33% chance of dealing five damage to something, including players. And on a six, you plus one him, and then you may activate Comet Stellar Pup's loyalty ability two more times this turn. This looks Minsk and Boo level playable, no? So I think... Four and five are a negative. Pretty sure. Yeah, mi- minus two on the yeah. on the deal of five damage or whatever. Yeah. So basically, so the first time you roll, you're getting either two, you're returning something. Let's see, and then what? And the may activize. Okay. So I mean, we've seen some of this on um, the wannabe format on Magic Arena where they have some of this random more randomization in there about, you know, what your planewalkers do or, you know, what you'll be getting for cards and things like that. And, you know, that type of variance is toxic to anyone in a competitive environment because you want to be able to plan out what you're doing. You want to have consistency. If you're playing a seven-round, eight-round tournament, you lose one game, it is huge, right? And so you, it's not about 5-0 in a league and having something powerful. It's about having a consistency. Here, I mean, you have no clue what you're going to get. Um, I, I, I don't see this seeing play okay. personally. Now, over an EDH, on the other hand, this is going to get, yeah. this will see plenty of play. Sure. Because yeah. the, the abilities are powerful. They're just random. Right, they're just random, and they're I, you know, and like the three ability returning a mana value two or less from graveyard is very powerful if you have something in the graveyard, right? Um, and a lot of times you're not going to want to return a land; you're going to want to return uh, something better, and so things like that where they're maybe innately powerful, but in context are not useful uh, can also be challenging. Keep in mind, in in commander, there's a bunch of cards that are more likely to be played that affect the die rolls themselves that give you selected selectivity in the die rolls and when, once this card is controllable it's obviously powerful like if you got to pick which one of these it's crazy yeah how long until we have a die roll deck do well, i guess the, the yeah like the flip it deck essentially for die rolling how the, long there's do you there's a bunch of cards for possible? it already the yeah I'm I'm willing to buy into that Comet is too unreliable in terms of the line of play for Legacy, but it wouldn't blow my mind if we saw it show up somewhere. Well, and people will test. I mean, that's the thing. So, for example, when uh, the Secret Layer 
Walking Dead came out, there was a lot of testing of some of those cards and legacy humans and things like that. And people, you know, they, they want to get that 5-0 list to show off what's possible. And it's fun. But again, going back to consistency and competitive and being able to do it in a, you know, 100 plus person tournament, that's when those type of decks fell apart and never made it. They also released Space Balerin, two white blue legendary planeswalker Jace. It is Jace the Mind Sculptor in space with a ray gun, and it may be a lightsaber in the background. Hard to say. Uh, it has Space Sculptor. Space Balerin divides the battlefield into alpha, beta, and gamma sectors. If a creature isn't assigned to a sector, its controller assigns it to one. Opponents assign first. And then the plus one, creatures in each sector can be blocked this turn only by creatures in the same sector. Minus one, put a plus one plus one counter on each creature in the sector of your choice. Minus five, destroy all creatures in the sector of your choice. So for a while, you're controlling the flow of battle and making your creatures bigger. And then your ultimate is that you're going to destroy like a third of the creatures on the board. Yep. We'll probably be fooled around with in EDH. Will anybody be daring enough to run this in Legacy? I don't think so. It's, I mean, A, there's not that many creatures running around a lot of times. I mean, sometimes, but not enough where you want to play a four-mana Planeswalker to control the battlefield. Um, Additionally, totally separate, did you see um, Manguchi's tweet about Raging River? Yeah which is a card I had never heard of, but it, it allows you to choose on which side of the river to place attacking creatures, and they can only be blocked on each side of the river. And It was just kind of a, a parody saying, legacy players are freaking out about this card, but did you know this exists? <laughs> I, I, I think this, you know, I think they did a good job of dumbing down the power. This is interesting in some ways, but definitely not competitively playable. And of cards shown... I mean, other than the black kill spell they showed us last spring, that is obviously going to be a commander super staple. Uh, the rest of this does not have me super excited. I mean, you've got attempted murder as a legacy playable card. It's X double black. Choose target creature. Roll X six-sided dice. For each even result, put two minus one minus one counters on that creature. For each odd result, create a one-two blue bird creature token with flying named Stormcrow. If you can take down a legacy tournament with Stormcrows, there is certainly style points to be earned. But it does not seem super likely to me. Doesn't seem likely. But I will say, if any of these hit, you look at True Name Nemesis. I mean, that card went absolutely bonkers when it was printed only in commander decks and you know, was doing well in Legacy. Minsk and Boo is doing well. Uh, the Hex card we talked about, Movers, is moving, I think, in, in some point, at least some way because of Legacy. So if, it, if that does hit, if any of them hits, they can move prices, uh, at least for a short period of time, just based on Legacy play. You know, it's when you look on the one or two year horizon, that's, you know, not really a thing. But short term, it is worth paying attention to. Uh, but I do doubt any of these will see any real play. All right, so next week we'll take a a deeper look once we've seen more spoilers and try to figure out how much of this set is actually going to matter. So far, I think the from a spec perspective, this is still all about the foil galaxy uh, shock lands that are in only four percent of collector boosters, and I think the non-foil versions of the full the borderless shock lands are in uh, one out of every twenty-four packs in regular 
infinity boosters. So that is where most of the financial action is going to be targeted. Yep. That's that's where you it just like in the past that's the EV was in the basic lands, now it'll be in the shock lands and they'll get probably get a little cheap and then explode just like they did with the secret layers. All right, for our final segment, we're going to move on over to have a little chat with Daniel Fournier, magic grinder, uh, weightlifter, local LGS employee. Daniel, dive in here. You were looking to check in and have a little chat about the state of competitive play. And I guess specifically we're talking about Canada, um, but there are elements of this at play in other regions as well. You want to tell us a little bit about what's been going on? So the state of competitive play in Canada specifically right now is just really interesting, both for better and for worse, I think. Um, Competitive play in a post-GP world is really localized, essentially. And so much happened as a result of the changing like post-GP landscape with Watsi, where things are just wild now. Basically, Wizards of the Coast wants to be like three degrees removed from literally everything, and therefore is kind of reached out across the world to find local partners. Uh, this sometimes goes very poorly. <laughs> One example of that is that the judge program, Wizards went completely hands-off, and that's essentially a third-party independent entity now that they support with card prizing and so forth. Yeah, completely. Judging is really weird now, to be honest. Um, yeah, the Judge Academy is kind of its own independent like certification program. Judges are compensated by like paying for promos basically yeah you go up in value but it's just so weird um part of and part of the separation of judging from wizards of the coast is part of event cost skyrocketing so running events is incredibly expensive now like venue fees are infinite people expect justly to be paid quite a bit the judge like judge staff is well paid now um and as a result, just running events is incredibly expensive, and you end up in a situation where there's all these independent tournament organizers not really subsidized by WOTC in a position where they have to run these high-quality events that are promotional events for Wizards of the Coast. However, this is where this gets weird in a lot of places, Canada included, <laughs> where we now have this situation where um, Organized Play in Canada is run entirely by face-to-face games, basically. Right. They they have a monopoly over organized play in Canada. And and for people and uh, people that aren't aware, face-to-face is basically like the Star City Games of Canada. They have multiple retail locations, yes. a big online e-commerce presence, and are often referenced even in Facebook forums as the de facto price reference point for the country. Yeah, for years when pricing cards, when selling cards on Facebook or whatever in Canada... Uh, you don't go by, oh, what's the TCG market belt, or TCG mid, I guess, back in the day. It's, oh, what's this on face-to-face? Let's sell for 80% of that. That's really interesting because I'm, like, I'm, sure, I'm sure all the listeners of this podcast who are Canadian know that uh, the Canadian magic card market is quite weird. We don't, we, we've historically been kind of separated from a lot of places in other ways, and specifically because like TCG players are not particularly great at shipping to Canada. Or the, I should say the vendors on TCG. Very, on yeah, you, yeah, very few vendors will ship, and so your availability of inventory is much reduced. 
Ex- exactly, and the shipping is often very expensive, fragmented, etc. So we're like a, a, a weird thing where we have like this very large, not not Titanic, but like a very large market that doesn't have a marketplace like M- like a MKM or TCG player kind of driving the market down. Sorry, driving prices down. Um, and so historically speaking, face-to-face games has always kind of been able to leverage that in order to be the only ones who has cards, right? Um, and this... <laughs> trying, trying to say this in a way that's not particularly negative. That's always kind of just been their... Uh, in their ammo, like they're the ones who have the cards. Yeah, so very similar uh, to Star City Games or Channel Fireball, where they're the highest profile operator in the market, but that tends to mean that they have the highest overhead. It also means that they have the highest retail cost for whatever you happen to be looking at. Um, yeah, exactly. And and with sorry, go ahead. So, for example, I think I was I was posting Dominaria United collector boosters to Facebook the other day and was referencing against face to face and then looked at 401 games, which is where you're at now, if I understand correctly. And you guys were 20 or 30 dollars less a box than face to face. And I was another 20 or 30 bucks less a box below that. Yeah. Sorry, I guess I should, uh, I should probably should have prefaced this with a disclaimer that I <laughs> I work at a rival of face-to-face games, so just saying, <laughs> that's my... Back in the uh, <laughs> day, you worked at face-to-face as well, right? You've been on both ends. Yeah. Yeah, I helped open the, the Toronto store. I was never particularly involved in their, um, like, online operations, or, and by particularly, I mean, I was not involved with their online operations, so I can't really speak too much as to that. Because that's out of Montreal. Yeah, yeah, that's out of their Montreal warehouse. Right. Um, yeah, certainly, I mean, on sealed product, they, they, they don't really do sealed product in the way that a place like 401 does, but that that's not particularly important anyways. Yeah, it's always been kind of their model to have card availability and to be the only ones with card availability um, because there's no huge sellers like TCG Player or whatever. In Canada, it's frequently difficult to buy cards. Like, let's say you want to go buy an entire deck. There is nowhere you can buy an entire deck except for face-to-face. You go to your local game store, you go to some like small local online, online retailer, like Fusion Gaming or something. I shouldn't say small, I don't really know how small Fusion is. Um, or you buy the entire deck from face-to-face at like a 30% markup. Right, and, and that's even, the, and the funny thing is during COVID, face-to-face operation in Toronto, which used to have a very extensive singles availability, moved to a very small showcase with just an, an assortment of premium cards. Um, so yeah, Montreal took all their, even within their own operation, they have refocused on online availability over retail presence on the floor. Yeah. Very, very strongly, which, which I think actually was the correct thing to do during COVID COVID made obviously online card game retail go nuts. We all made a staggering amount of money and, uh, that's clearly, Honestly, clearly the future beyond, like, you can just do so much more volume online versus trying to, like, maintain binders that have people look through and all that kind of crap. But, uh, yeah, so, so the effect of face-to-face basically always being on, like, 30, 30% above market, and, like, where, where I'm getting to with this <laughs> is, I swear this has something to do with organized play. <laughs> face-to-face is always, like, 30% above market. That's an exaggeration, but it's a point. That means that their buy list is very high because their buy list is obviously being based off a percentage of the retail or whatever, et cetera. Um, 
and their organized play, the face-to-face tour, previously known as the Mana Deprived Super Series, were always a primary vector for buying cards. That's the purpose of the face-to-face tour. Obviously the purpose of the face-to-face tour. It's the purpose of the SCG tour. It's the purpose of any non-Wizards of the Coast tournament series is to buy cards. As a large online retailer, you are hard-capped on your intake of cards from like your local market. Sure, people can mail you in cards or whatever, but like that is not the same as like huge amounts of people coming through your store. We were I'm, I'm in charge of buying cards at 401. That's my job. And we're now doing upwards of like 1200 to 1400 buy less a month. Maybe maybe 300 of that comes from the mail. It is still like majority local. In, in person, here's my shoebox. Tell me what it's worth. Uh, less that, more people like interacting with online buy list tools. It tends to be more high information people submitting buy lists these days, okay. but that's just the nature of like having robust online buy list tools. To get more of those kinds of, hey, here's my shoebox of cards. And those are the best deals, right? Because like full, full disclosure, like we're going to try to be fair, but like if you're dropping off a shoebox of cards, you are not getting the maximum amount of value out of every single penny of cards in that sure. box, no matter where you sell Because you're not going to go through just... and pr- precision price your offer. You're going to say, ah, I think this is roughly five grand in cards. And so to accommodate my margin of error in my quick evaluation, I'm going to offer a little less than I would um, if I if we had the, you know, if you just brought me one Black Lotus near Mint where I can very precisely assess what kind of margin I need. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're going to, well, first off, the incentives are skewed in such a way where you, <laughs> if you're submitting your buy list online at a store, you want to be, you want to get every penny out of your cards. Whereas obviously if the card store is the one submitting the buy list <laughs> themselves, they are less incentivized to give you every single penny. But also like, you're just not going to look up every single two cent card. Half of the value in that stuff just comes from piles and piles and piles of like $2 buy list cards or whatever. And the store is not going to look up that kind of stuff. That is what event buying is like. Right. Those are the kinds of buy lists that you really want. You want people to just dump off their crap. You buy all their ledger shredders. It's not people like, it's not the, at event, buying at events, you're not getting the binder grinder types. You're not getting the MTG finance types who are there to like exploit a loophole in your buy list, do arbitrage, all that kind of stuff. Or if you are, it's it's an incredibly minor amount of the action. Yeah, yeah, the, in the context of, a, of an event. But in the context of, like, mail-in buy lists, let me tell you, that is a high percentage of what you've got. We're, we're always happy to buy cards, but the cards you buy by the ma- through the mail are garbage compared to the cards you buy at events. So you want to run events. Problem is, events are insanely expensive to run, right? It, the venue fees are skyrocketing. You actually have to pay judges now. It used to be that you could give them sealed product or Watsy would give them sealed product depending on what kind of event it is um yeah the event staff etc whatever it's just astronomically expensive to run events but <laughs> what if Wizards of the Coast was subsidizing it sure <laughs> and that's and that's the awkward place where we're at right now where basically Watsy has handed a monopoly on organized play in Canada to face-to-face games in order to run magic events that matter you have to pay face-to-face games. As a competitor, you have to pay face-to-face games money. Uh, and basically, they get to have these huge subsidized... Not like subsidized might be pushing it, but like... <laughs> they, they get they get promos. They are obligated by Wizards of the Coast to turn... Not to, to break even, at the very least. 
um, after the debacle of Channel Fireball events, basically asking for more and more and more from Wizards of the Coast in support as the cost of running GPs skyrocketed and they didn't want to have event like entry fees of like 150 bucks or whatever. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's where we end up in the situation in Canada where we have stores paying face to face for events, players paying the stores to like to enroll in these like PPTQ level RCQ qualifiers. And then on top of that, the regional championship costs about a hundred dollars to enter. And that's like you're used to not paying for an RPTQ, and then all of a sudden there's the sticker shock of a hundred dollar entry fee. And that's because these events that are supposed to be basically run at a loss as a reason to buy cards are all of a sudden break even because Wizards of the Coast is like handing out all these promos and giving them a monopoly on it. Right. And that's really weird because all of a sudden there's this huge, huge, huge vendor that's always been able to control the market also now being able to control events, which is the vector for buying cards. Right. And so to review, ultimately what that ends up doing within a market in that situation is it's probably going to make cards more expensive on average. It makes the events more expensive for the players on average. The outcomes from those results uh, don't necessarily, aren't the, the incentives are not in place to ensure that the benefit of those events trends upward because there's no competition. As long as they meet the requirements for the events in terms of break-even, et cetera, then they're probably going to remain undisturbed. And Wizards has little reason to rock the cart once the boat is sailing soundly in the right direction. And then any other vendor that wants to be on the floor buying cards is paying money that the primary store, face, face-to-face, um, does not have to pay because it's their event. So it's kind of like the Star City Games Tour where, yeah, sure, there was 15 vendors on the floor, but Star City always had the largest advantage because they could have the biggest booth, the best position, they control all the variables, and so they're, they they could potentially have a higher yield uh, in terms of buy list on the floor. And FACE can decide to have zero competitors on the floor, three, five, ten, it's up to them to do whatever they think makes the most sense. And all of that ends up skewing in their direction. I've been to a lot of SCG events, and let me tell you, the number of people selling cards to SCG versus the number of people selling cards like, I don't remember the names of the, I don't even remember the names of the other say, stores. That's say, how few say, people ta- are Say Tales of Adventure, like Michael Caffrey's store or whatever. Yeah, like those, I mean, I think he has like a, a pretty niche, uh, a, neat, a more niche market with the more internal stuff, I think. I don't really know that much about those stores, but yeah, no, basically, that's basically what it is. Um, and... I'm actually not particularly doom and gloom about it because I don't think this system survives. But if it does, I think it would be very poor. Uh, The reason I don't think it will survive is basically because of a huge guaranteed decline in participation this next season, both because of Wizards shooting themselves repeatedly in their own feet, and then the rest of their legs too, I guess, with having the regional championship be standard, and then all the promos. The promos were really like subsidizing this for players, I think. The fact that like in Canada, at least, it's very, very, very easy to qualify for regionals, and so the supply of Nykthos Shrine of whatever the card's called, yeah, Nykthos, yeah, yeah. Uh, just flowing out into the player base, which is a, a pioneer was, staple and an EDH card, but not very important anywhere else. Yeah, um, 
but also like the, it's the kind of card where at 401 we we were never able to keep that card in stock no matter sure. what. it didn't matter how 50 60 bucks whatever it goes online it sells immediately and now there's this huge influx of those cards and they've like managed to maintain their value you can very easily flip those uh, promo nick those to like 50 a pop on facebook marketplace and that made it so that these tournaments were actually like val- fairly valuable to play in for players because there was this huge promotional subsidy on them, which also obviously helped face-to-face a lot um, in making it so that stores would be happy with running these events. But despite all of that, I know that there are regions where these RCQs were very successful, and even regions inside of Canada, but in Toronto specifically, they were a huge loss. Like, there were countless RCQs that were like one slot RCQs with like whatever, like 12 players. Countless is pushing it. There were RCQs with like 12 players. There were four slot RCQs with like 20 players. And remember, <laughs> all these stores are paying face to face between 100 and almost $400 to run these events. That's like so much money on top of like what's basically a, a store level 1K situation. And to put this in perspective, if you have 20 people in a four slot, you could go three, one, and one or something and make top eight. Yeah, and then you have a Nykthos if you... Sure. <laughs> yeah, like you, yeah, the top 12 or whatever get a non-flow Nykthos and the top four get a second Nykthos. But the promos next season are worthless. It's uh, what? Thraben Inspector and Selfless Spirit. That That is not yeah. Nykthos Shrine to mix. It's a very different... Uh, and the regional promo next season is Gideon Ally of Zendikar as opposed to Teferi Hero of Dominaria. <laughs> yeah, in a standard tournament. Nobody's played Paper Standard in 10 years. Does, 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 does Standard God. fire... Like, do you guys even fire Standard at 401? Oh, we haven't tried to fire Standard in years. Wow. Why would you bother? No one plays it. I don't think there's a Standard. What, what, what does fire on location at 401 these days? Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh. Okay. Pokemon. Do, do you fire Draft? Like magic drafts? <laughs> yeah, we actually we actually still do very well in terms of sealed. Uh, we've always had a, a specifically like a very healthy limited environment. Okay. We, our drafts. What, what about modern it. or legacy commander pods? Honestly, I mean commander's always popping. Commander's just commander. It's its own separate. It's own, its own little world. It's always doing well. But in terms of uh, like tabletop constructed locals, that's dead. Wow. Because that, cause that like was a 10, big scene for a long longer. time in Toronto. Like, Toronto was not one of the yep. cities that had trouble firing an FNM. Uh, COVID killed that. Right. Like, almost completely. Uh, and so I'm legitimately worried about the future of, like, this kind of competitive magic. Uh, I think... COVID hurt it a lot, obviously, but I also think that some of the uh, powers that be have fumbled the ball on keeping competitive magic alive in Toronto be that face-to-face with their, like, the Showdown series, all these, like, constant 1Ks and the face opens and stuff all still exist. But uh, I don't think anyone cares anymore. Uh, they cut all of their coverage immediately right at the start of COVID. They just, uh, not to go too deep behind the curtain, but they just uh, got on a Google Hangouts with their coverage guys and said, we're done with this forever, bye not forever that's pushing it I shouldn't be <laughs> like foreseeable future this isn't going to make sense we're out yeah yeah all, all, all us writers and so I was writing for face at the time it was just Nick no this is over and now there's like there's a little bit of coverage it opens but there's not like 
the in-depth open recaps. Uh, it used to be that every Sunday at face-to-face Toronto, you could go play a one case, uh, the showdown series. It fed into an invitational and there was coverage of those events. Not like a live stream with commentary or whatever, but there was a top eight photo, the winner got congratulated, the deck list got posted. There was like a couple paragraphs of blurb about that. And that kind of stuff like really drives a community. People, magic players don't, tournament magic players, I should say, really genuinely are not in it for money or value in any way. If you're in magic tournaments for value, you're a fool. Get out. Go work. (laughs) Go do something else with your time. It's all about prestige. And prestige is damaged when people don't care about the events. If people don't care about the events because there's no coverage or whatever, no continuity, then they don't care about the events. If people don't care about the events because everyone hates the events because you paid $50 to qualify for it, and then you had to pay another $96, including $6 to MTG Melee to play the regionals, and therefore nobody cares and nobody shows up, nobody participates, the prestige is gone instead. And that continues. That's like a, a rippling effect, obviously. And, and this is what... It, where is, people don't show up to 1Ks, people don't show up to locals, and then all of a sudden the tabletop constructed scene is dying. And see, this is what I think is so astonishing about how Wizards more or less tripped into Commander being their biggest format. What It wasn't developed internally. They were slow to embrace it. When they finally got around to embracing it, it was a kind of slow, steady stepstone over the course of about a decade. And now it's undeniably the thing that's keeping the brand alive. Like I, I, I don't think any store would debate that the majority of the cards they sell are to Commander players. I've been seeing, honestly, a little bit of a weird shift lately where obviously Commander is still very much so alive and well when we sell boatloads of commander staples but the drive like the primary drive in sales right now is just random cards like casual people just kitchen table casual like exactly like even a whole a whole another level of casual like i this is so like divorced from any of my understanding of what i enjoy about magic so i have a very hard time really kind of knowing what's going on so i try to look at other people we have a regular who's just always buying like pre-modern gauntlets okay like he's just constantly buying building new and new pre-modern decks to play with his friends it's all that kind of stuff or like i know somebody who's been building historical standard decks right so 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 people that are building cubes that are playing with their friends and family at the dinner table that are you know doing a a small group gaming night on their friday night with with their friends and they're cracking some casual commander decks or whatever Exactly. Magic's great. It's still, like, just unbelievably good. <laughs> Everyone loves playing Magic still. But the traditional vectors of, of like, of Magic gameplay feel either, like, it just feels like it's kind of passing by, you know? It's one of- Commander's still big, but it feels like Commander's oversaturated to the point where a lot of the, I mean, even the most diehard Commander people are starting to get a little, like... This is the 17th Commander-only release this year. Like. Yeah, there's a very, <laughs> very high cadence for, for releases at this point. The, Which is why I think it's kind of interesting that during COVID, you know, we've talked on this cast before about how Wizards bought Spelltable, which is their webcam-based uh, Commander platform, but hasn't done anything to it. Like, there's, there's no... They could have done a promotion six months into COVID, partnered with Logitech and sold some kind of playmat, promo card, webcam combo 
that would have been fulfilled. Yeah, well, they would have had to take the developer off of Magic Online. Well, I mean, did you know that there's one developer on Magic Online? Well, Magic Online got outsourced now to a third-party company, so it's a whole different story. Okay, entirely. there's no longer one developer in Magic. Okay, last I heard, <laughs> never mind. But well, there's one. There is one developer in the sense that it's a third-party company who is uh, whose claim to fame is that they maintain dead games. Like, oh right, I remember that. So, yeah, so yeah. that's gone on. But it's also like putting aside the spell table thing. They also haven't ramped up Commander on Arena which is the platform that they have the greatest reach with where they could in fact leverage the popularity of commander and then do all sorts of things. I mean, the, the fact that there isn't a total life cycle digital software product that integrates wizards data collection with store sales and gives everybody on that side of the fence, uh, much better, uh, analytics in terms of customer customer behavior prediction and uh, the generation of inventory levels to match predicted patterns of behavior blows my mind because it's such an obvious opportunity in the collectible collectible space where like picture if at 401 you had a wizards provided tool that could manage all your inventory that always that had scryfall level uh, solid data the data spine of every card ever made broken down by set filterable every way you would you would possibly want to be able to and every time you make a sale it's collecting all that data it's connecting it with the person's wizards play network account and we know what tournaments they played in we know what products they bought we know what commanders they like we know that white commanders are up 14 percent this quarter and blue cards are down 12 percent and we know that the likelihood that infinity is going to sell is actually poor so we're going to reduce the print run to such and such to make sure it still sells out there's just so much they could be doing given that they're 30 years into the game that is not that hard they just have to throw money at it and they're just so reluctant like hasbro is just so tight-fisted in advancing their own they're game very, they're very stingy so stingy i would say i, I would say a couple of things first off that would put me out of a job no i'm kidding i still have a job it certainly would be much less interesting <laughs> much easier <laughs> half of my job is trying to have those tools to manage all that kind of stuff trying to build those tools sure. and uh who let me tell you given that every magic set now is not 200 cards anymore it's actually 2000 cards yeah and they come out every month <laughs> that's a challenge um secondly well wizards of the coast is famously really good at all their digital and digital related offerings so i'm sure that <laughs> would go really swimmingly and not have any problems associated with it whatsoever. yeah there is that <laughs> Also, it would require them acknowledging the existence of the secondary market, which <laughs> always just feels like a touchy subject. It, it does. And I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of weight on their shoulders from the legal team on that topic. But the reality is that not having those in analytics in place makes them much less nimble. And more importantly, well, it makes, makes it much exactly. harder for them to empower their retailer network. And, yeah, 100%. And the way sealed, especially when it comes to sealed stuff, it's so hit or miss with them. They, like, oh my god. Every store lost so much money on CLB. Yeah. Uh, like, like, oh my A, god. a story we have heard from all over the world, really. Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, they're just lighting money on fire. And every, like, oh, there was no way for us to know it. But, like, internally, they could have known. 
it's just a disaster. And it's just so mystifying They're because never gonna change, they only so needed the like five cards. Like they, they just needed yeah. a couple of key reprints, high value reprints, yeah. and a couple of better new cards, and they would have been just fine. Yeah. No. None of that. The secondary market doesn't exist because our lawyers have told us that, uh, I don't know, maybe they're afraid of the secondary market unionizing or something. How, how did Dominaria United do for you guys so far? Uh, very, very, very well. Good. That's what I thought. It, was it your impression it, that it's the general theme that people enjoy the Legends Matters Dominaria theme? Or do you think the potential of opening a tabernacle is driving sales? Um, I know that for a certain subset of people, the Legends promotion thing did certainly drive sales, but I don't think it's necessarily like a primary thing. People do love the Dominaria theme a lot. People love classic magic, and that shows every time they do some classic magic thing, it hits. Like, I remember I remember the old Dominaria set, just running the pre- I ran the pre-releases at 401 for that set back in the day, and wow. <laughs> that was just, like, one of the busiest events I remember ever running. Right. And this was just exactly the same. It was just kind of popping off. It's kind of hard to... It's kind of hard to differentiate each set for us, like, whether this particular set was successful or just... We're continuing to grow at a rapid clip because Canada is desperate for uh, trading cards that aren't at thirty percent above market, and we finally have the market share to present that to them. Right. So there's that, but also, <laughs> I think Dominaria United was good. <laughs> right. Do you? Is, how does Pokemon compare or Yu-Gi-Oh compare to Magic in terms of the importance in your store? Uh, Magic is still very much so our number one, but we have always made an effort to serve as many markets as we can profitably. We always branch out in as many places as we can. We're always diversified. So like, let's say there's a bad magic set like CLB. We're not out of business, right? Like it's not like it's, it's an L, but we are doing so many other things that it's always okay. Um, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh tend to sell way more sealed product than magic does these days. Their sealed product offerings are way more streamlined people buy infinite boxes of Pokemon because they're just looking, 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 looking for whatever the alternate art secret rare is or whatever, right. because premium cards in Pokemon uh, matter. <laughs> they're, they're worth a lot of money right? <laughs> because they're rare and you find them in booster packs, and, normal booster packs, not collector booster packs. Sure. Although Pokemon's done some of that as well with the, the hyper elite trainer boxes and whatever. Like is, yeah, they do some like, fun. They do some fun like stuff. Like I'm sure you guys had pretty like, heavy sales pressure on that Charizard product that came out recently. Uh, I actually don't. It's like the ultra, the ultra <laughs> premium deal. collection or something like that. I don't really deal too much with any of uh, the uh, Pokemon side. The Pokemon sealed product, that's for sure. I just know that like we're sold out of Lost Origin boxes again. Do you have any information that's... about how D and D has ramped up in sales over the last few years? I have no idea. That's uh, way out of my wheelhouse, unfortunately. Well, I only know the cards. Well, I guess here's a more interesting question on that dimension. Do you have a dedicated D&D team member? Like, who hand, who um, handles your, like, stocking your D&D zone and making decisions about that? I believe we have a person at the Vaughn warehouse who is dedicated to, like, the ordering of RPG books as a category as a whole. Um, obviously a significant percentage of that is D&D, but managing D&D is easier compared to like dealing with all of the smaller publishers, talking all the smaller titles. Sure. Like there's a huge enthusiast tabletop community that we that we serve. 
Uh, you can buy D&D stuff anywhere. All that we have to do is just compete on price and stock with all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Whereas with everything else, we can compete on uh, catalog. So let's get back to standard for a second. There's, there's a long-term problem here <laughs> on the competitive side that's pretty obvious to anybody who's thought about it, which is that no one's playing standard, as you said. And I think that's probably true in a lot of places around the world. And yet that's the primary onboarding mechanism. And the bridging the gap from, say, at-home commander to FNM Modern, for instance, is so much more awkward because your card pool doesn't translate, your play experience doesn't translate. It's really like you're playing a different game entirely. Yeah, you're not developing any heuristics that are relevant to com- competing in Magic. Right. Like everything you're learning through Kitchen Table or through Commander is actually actively probably a bad habit towards winning a game of com- competitive Magic. Right? Yeah, because you by competitive I mean where both you and your opponent are trying to win. Right. Because in Commander, it pretty much turns one through four are people setting up. It's almost like they're taking turns, laying, putting their pieces on the chessboard, and they haven't. They're not really trying to do anything unless they're playing CDH. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're playing StarCraft, Brood War, fastest <laughs> yes, map, yes. no rush twenty, air units only. Right. So, <laughs> in a world where you're still trying, because the the benefit of of legacy and now modern, because I've long said that Wizards has almost no interest in supporting legacy or vintage. They're kind of irrelevant because of their them being tied to cards they can't print or don't want to. So then you're dealing with modern and pioneer, which are important because it allows people to take their draft cards and their standard cards and their EDH cards and repurpose them for in a competitive environment and in theory bond them more tightly to the game. And the question becomes, is the brand in danger if that on-ramp no longer exists? Or will Magic survive just fine and the stores survive just fine, the ones that are well-run and plan accordingly, if Magic reverts to casual plus EDH for the most part? So here's the part that's utterly incomprehensible to me. I've been saying exactly that for the better part of a decade now. Standard is dying. We can't fire standard events. The Magic, the Gathering like secondary market ecosystem depends on standard to exist and for draft to exist to have these cards in the market that have the right prices and people have them in their collections and they move them as they rotate etc etc like that's the health of the ecosystem however we can't keep any standard cards in stock ever but nobody plays standard so what the hell is going on? Well, but that makes perfect sense because if they were showing up for standard and they're switching decks every so often as the meta evolves, then they're going to be dumping cards to you to get the new cards they need for the latest tech that they saw on the SEG tour Saturday morning. Oh, wow. Round three. Where did that blue deck come from? And when you subtract all of that, you have... We're still buying tons of standard too. It's just moving really, really, really well to the new kind of kitchen table audience. I think. But, but that's what, I, what I'm saying is that those people don't necessarily have the same uh, impetus to buy list to you on a regular, because they're not in the store every Friday night competing and coming in half an hour early to swap out their deck as, you know, as a participant in Toronto for nearly the full 30 years of the game. You know, I've seen, I knew John 20 years ago and the, you know, that thing where people would show up early, get the new cards they needed to adjust their deck, and then go sit down and play. 
just doesn't exist anymore. So instead, you've got a collector guy who used to come to FNM, but now he plays EDH with his buddies and he buys collector boosters, not draft booster boxes. And he scavenges them and then maybe trades with his friends a little bit, buys a few extra things online, but isn't dumping the cards off. Our primary intake of standard legal cards from people is people doing the Pokemon thing, where they are buying large amounts of product and buy listing tons of it right back to us immediately. So they're like, I don't they're understand. They're like cracking on, all. they're cracking on the glass in front of you, and then handing back the stuff they don't need. Usually, with a bit more of a delay in between, they go home with the product and come back with it later. I guess I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand this. When at they all. could just buy the it's singles they need for less, yeah. Yeah, this is also foreign to me. Well, I think they... I almost feel like we're feeding into like a gambling addiction here. Sure. Like you're just buying more product at the store credit they get out of yeah, it. Yeah, it's a, it's a pack a pack s- cracking process where they eventually spend more and more money and get less and less return. Yeah, the way I see it is if you want to open and sort cards for us and pay us for the privilege of doing our work for us, <laughs> by all means, please. I appreciate right. it. Right. Thank you. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know that like that old, uh, not dichotomy, but like that old that old ecosystem of people showing up before the event, trading in the cards from the previous deck to buy their new deck. Obviously, it just doesn't exist anymore. But also, every Magic store is selling like better than ever before. The game is like thriving. Everyone's moving more cards than ever before. <laughs> so what the hell's going on? <laughs> Well, now we've got this whole other dynamic you've got to think about is whether eBay is going to open TCG player up to international sellers. Yeah, who knows? I've Yeah, I've not followed that at all. I generally assume that uh, it's never going to be as significant as I think it's going to be, but maybe it will be. I don't know. Canada could certainly use some downward market pressure where... Yeah, to be honest, we're trying to apply some of that. I think it's working somewhat, but uh, it's hard to say for sure because I mean, I put you, I put you this way: I hardly ever buy and sell singles in Canada, and of the like, maybe sixty thousand I spend on signal singles a year, most of it is pointed at Europe and Japan, given the extreme exchange rate uh, benefit from the U.S. dollar to the euro and the yen. Where, yeah, I mean that makes sense. I think if there's money, to, money to be made in the markets for Magic at the moment, it's not a matter of like moving things domestically. Our market is too weird. Okay, cool. And too like pointed in certain directions too, right? Like there, there are certain cards here that are just. <laughs> there was a, a a time fairly recently where we were we were pricing Ragavans at like I'm pulling these numbers kind of out at random like let's say it's like whatever like 80 on tcg player it's like so what like uh yeah around just 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 over 100 canadian converted face face is selling them at 140 we put them at 130 buy them at like 80 or whatever literally seconds after they sell sorry seconds after we list them for like a five-month period that ragged end sells immediately every single time despite it being like twenty dollars above market, and yet you go look at like, I don't know, you go look at listings in America, and they're like, eight, yeah, eighty US consistently all over. There, the there seems to be a tremendous amount stuff. of friction across borders where people are scared to order things from other places. Yes, 
We have a very domestic market, and that's really interesting. And it's not the case in other games, too. Like, we sell so much more of other card games uh, across borders. It's so funny. Like, I think most of our uh, Dragon Ball Super audiences in the U.S., for instance. I mean, one of the really weird things here is that we have this this uh, courier in Canada that dumps product to USPS by literally driving it around, uh, across the border called chit chat chit chats. So, and we have outlets here in Toronto. So if when I'm selling some a hundred dollar card on eBay, I actually put my shipping cost shipped from Toronto as zero to the U S but 15 to $20 in Canada, because there is no $5 track shipping in Canada because Canada post thinks that track shipping isn't a add on to an existing envelope. It's a whole different class of service. And so there, there's just no way to ship tracked in Canada at any kind of reasonable price, but I can ship tracked USPS from within Canada for five bucks. It's crazy, right? So I, so <laughs> I'm a Canadian vendor with inventory that, I mean, doesn't rival face to face, but probably rivals all but the top five stores in the country. And I do almost zero business in my own backyard. Like I sell sealed product, but almost never singles. So yeah, it's definitely a weird market. All right. So I mean, when you th- when you think about like how the the kind of infrastructure of competitive play is crumbling or crumbled, do you see that as a red flag for the whole brand, or you just think that it's kind of the end of an era and we're like it's just a transition that's going on? Definitely the latter. Okay. Uh, I think it would be very foolish to see it as any kind of apocalyptic scenario for Magic, especially from a financial perspective. I think that's just a redefinition of what it is. Uh, I mean, something that just rings true about working at a card shop and being in trading card retail for so long, you don't care about competitive players. Uh, that's not where you make your that money. You could, yeah, that ecosystem I always thought was relevant, but only relevant to a certain degree of like the growth of the game in the long, like over the long term. I think that critical mass has long since been reached, and Magic is just a part of the nerd ecosystem. There's no need for there to be a pro tour to happen for Magic to exist and be popular. Um, I was always very worried about the state of organized play and how it relates to the Magic ecosystem. I think it sucks real bad that there's no organized play in the way that it used to be in the way that it was popular with all the coverage and got like whenever i go watch the will hall experience uh stream on twitch i get so sad yeah <laughs> i love watching those old the old pro tour and gp coverage and i know it will never be like that again because why would it yeah because for, for a certain kind of player like that golden era is now behind us it's gone. It'll never come back. We're just going to have things like this where they try to contract uh, like regional people to, yeah, like regional tor- uh, regional TOs to like run a version of old organized play. And, you know, suckers like me will still go play all of it despite everything because, you know what, I just want to feel something. And the only way I can feel something is by winning matches of tournament magic that I paid $96 <laughs> to play. That's the only way for me to feel something. So I'll, I'll keep doing it. But people like me do not matter for, for the future of Magic. We we are nothing. I don't go by secret layers. I don't matter. <laughs> I don't play Commander. I hate Commander. All right. So, I, so I, got, I got one final uh, 
retail level question for you because one of the concerns I have long term about the game is I question whether not because of standard but just because of social changes both because of COVID and just generational changes do you think there are as many teenagers and young 20-somethings playing Magic as there was a decade ago? Um, I think that that's the group of people where you'll see any... If there's any chance of the future of competitive Magic, it's coming from, from the Zoomers. Uh, they're the people who are still passionate about, like, about competing in the game. I don't see that many young people getting into casual magic these days. That said, I only have a very anecdotal uh, view of that. I don't really have very much demographic information. Uh, and I mean, certainly as an online retailer, primarily an online retailer, we're mostly dealing with people in their mid mid to late twenties and people in their thirties. Uh, I do see the audience for magic like growing in age, and I think. That will continue to be the case. Yeah, I, I do have I don't um, have any worries about the game on a five to ten year horizon for the most part, but I do question yeah. the twenty year horizon because I think yeah, I agree. once the guys that are because I think that the current era, the booster fund era, is largely predicated on original twenty you know 19, late nineteen nineties early two thousands magic players growing into their peak incomes and being ready to spend more on their hobby. And so, hundred percent, they are purely designing around milking existing software. Right, it's, it's a whale mil- milking <laughs> operation now. Hundred percent, the collector booster boxes yeah. are double the price, half the cardboard, and wizards boost profits tremendously, and those people are happy because they get fancier cards. Yeah, imagine you're a kid who wants to play Magic. How how, how are you going to do that outside of playing Arena? And Arena teaches you, oh, standard. I love standard. I want to go to the card shop and play. St- oh wait. Oh wait. <laughs> Yeah, this is my thing. I, I question the uh, the both the whether there is an overall cultural shift away from that kind of in person play and towards digital, and that Dis- Wizards hasn't converted quickly enough on digital and gotten good at digital fast enough to really really capture the slice of that market they need to have brand presence for somebody who's currently fourteen to sixteen years of age. I question Definitely. I question how many of those people are bringing like unsleeved stacks of Magic cards to the lunchroom and risking COVID bullies. I think they're more likely to be playing Pokemon. Sure. Or Lorcana. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, that's going to be an interesting conversation a year from now for sure. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. We appreciate you coming on and sharing your valuable insights with us about the retail and competitive scene uh, of magic here in Toronto, Canada, and the implications it has for the broader market. Thank you, Oko, for being with us. Where can folks find you online, Daniel? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Torrento, I guess. I do have a, a fun little story to share with you all before, okay. before I go. Okay, hit us with the closing final fun story. Yeah, I guess. Quick little bit of content for you. This is supposed to happen today, but uh, yesterday I got a message from a coworker saying, oh my god, you won't believe who just placed an order for $70,000 of power nine and random old school like okay hit me with it so tomorrow i don't know when this release is going out but sorry when this episode is going out but as of today tomorrow i'm selling seventy thousand dollars of magic cards to post malone there you go so i mean which is gonna be a 
funny, funny moment in my life. So. Did, did you watch the Post Malone hanging out with the Command Zone crew and Becca Scott having drinks at midnight commercial? It might surprise you to know that that's not really the kind of content that appeals to me as a competitive <laughs> player. I'm, I'm sure it's great. And I'm glad for everyone involved. Uh, I'm good, thanks. So yeah, like part of, part of my I wonder if teenagers give a shit anymore comes from wizards clearly representing that they have no interest in attracting them because all all of their recent marketing is like here's post malone with youtube famous magic players that play commander and becca scott our our uh commentator from set reveals and they are hanging out at posty's house on a friday night at midnights and they're drinking alcohol and playing magic and Posty's talking about how he's going to slam windmill slam a card and put Josh to bed on time. And I'm like, this is <laughs> not the <laughs> the way they marketed this game 20 years ago. Yep, exactly. It's, uh, it's a different world. Anyways, <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, con- congrats on unloading the Power 9 stuff. Thanks. I was just I was joking earlier this week about how nobody buys high-end for cash anymore. And it's really annoying how it's always like, oh, I need a deal or, oh, I need to trade into this. And then lo and behold, like an angel descending from the heavens, Post Malone says, I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> Here's some money. Yeah, Post Malone's <laughs> collection is legendary, so not not tremendously surprising. All right. Uh, Oka, where can people find you online? Thanks, James. Uh, yeah, I'm Derek the Dark Mage. You can find me online at Oko Assassin on Twitter and my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. How about you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCrinic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com as well. You can also find me haunting our ProTrader Discord. also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best of the gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at www.coolstuffinc.com to save 5% on your order and to support this podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of MTG Fast Finance. As always, enjoy the discussion tonight, James, and thanks for coming on, Daniel. Thank you, Oko. Thank you, Daniel. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.